and welcome to episode number 320 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and on today's show we learn that jobs are being lost at EasyJet. There's good news and bad news for Boeing. There's a major fire at a Bombardier factory, looking forward to Matt saying that, in Belfast. And it's announced that Emirates fleet of A380s aren't going anywhere. We welcome Mentor Pilot for a chat about his career, and Nev shares with us the final part of his amazing highlight series. Uh, In the military, Armando has a chat with Bob Mills about his time as a Navy aviator. So joining us uh, this week, as always, over in the PTUK studios, pressing all the right buttons and moving all the right sliders, it's the man who this summer will have enough tomatoes to supply the whole (laughs) of the UK uh, supply chain. It's Matt Smith. Well, enough for Bungie, certainly. I think, you know, that'll be the way forward. There'll be plenty of... uh... Plenty of tomatoes going around here. We're very excited because Mum's been desperately trying to get tomato plants and have been essentially failing. Uh, so yeah, so uh, uh, thank you for uh, to uh, it's your mother-in-law, isn't it? That, that, that yes. they come from absolutely. Yes. So yeah, thank you yeah. for that. But nobody really cares about the tomatoes, Carlos. Let's be fair. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm guessing you've you've had your usual busy week, Matt, doing all your uh, usual. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've done done a bit of podcast work and stuff. But this is essentially sort of you know interfered with my otherwise hectic schedule of sitting so uh, yes it's been uh, it's uh, we're still on furlough here certainly and uh, uh, somebody who who uh, leaves furlough this week though it has to be said to go back yes. to work is a certain mr bounds joining us from his stately mansion Lovely. in buckinghamshire <laughs> hello well Neff. yes um this will be my last day of uh, rotation we like to call it oh my apologies uh, but uh, yeah so three weeks off has been a bit challenging. I've been doing uh, lots of Final Cut Pro courses and stuff like that, so mm. I've now got the hang of all that, I think. Lovely. Um, and my car is cleaner than ever, and so is the patio, um, <laughs> and so is the garden looking nice, but I'm really ready to go back to work now uh, oh, for the next three all weeks. All excited. So, uh, yeah. Yes, but, uh, and the weather's been superb, hasn't it? It's it been has. 25 degrees uh, oh, today, can, so... Uh, yeah, can you imagine nice. what it would have been like if it weren't for... if it had basically been a typical May where it had been doing Ooh. nothing but rain, I'm I mean, you know, it'd be a lot more unpleasant. Actually, this this time last year, we were experiencing one of the wettest Mays. We were, yeah, absolutely. For a long yeah, that's while. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So there, uh, yeah. Nice, to have, nice to have you back on, uh, as always, Nev. Good to see you. And uh, this week, we haven't got Armando with us until later on the show. He's going to join he's us in the later. Chat room, he's in the chat He's busy. He's busy doing some uh, various flighty type stuff. So, uh, yeah, he won't be joining various us later Various flighty on. type stuff. I know. <laughs> I know. You're English dictionary. <laughs> Lost on me, lost on me. Okay. But, uh, but we have got uh, a very special guest joining us on the show this week. He is uh, what most people will have known on social medias as the Mentor Pilot, uh, who has his own YouTube channel, and he produces some fantastic videos on YouTube explaining all the various things that go on within the world of commercial aviation. So we welcome onto the show, for his first time on the show, uh, Peter, Mentor Pilot. Well. Thank you very much for having me on the show, guys. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, yeah, let's talk some aviation because uh, pretty much that's all I'm doing nowadays. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Actually, it's quite ironic. Episode 320. 
And we've we've got uh, a Boeing pilot on right. the show. Right. Okay. We yeah, didn't think, we didn't think this through, did we? Really? <laughs> no. But then again, I, I didn't really want to wait to episode seven three seven. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. God, how old would we be then? So, so I mean, yeah. I mean, seriously, Petter. I mean, what what uh, what have you been doing in lockdown? What what has lockdown meant for you? Has has there been many changes? Yeah. I mean, um, I haven't been flying since mid February. Um, part of that was because I was going on to two months of planned leave anyway, mm. um, which is part of my contract because we're on kind of a seasonal contract here in my base. In, in, in But when this hit, obviously, we got in complete lockdown here in Spain. So um, we weren't even allowed to leave the house unless you needed to go and buy some groceries, which we did frequently. Um, but... So I've, I, what I've been doing is basically just trying to come up with and produce as much as possible on the YouTube channel because I realized that A, that's only, the only thing I really can do and B, there's a lot of people out there who have been sitting just like me and wanting to get some, some kind of entertainment and something to do. So I have effectively doubled my output for the channel for these few months. So we'll touch on that later, Peter, but we're going to kind of delve into uh, to a bit of your history, obviously, because you've got a really good following on, on the social medias. But obviously on the on the program on YouTube yourself, you kind of cover various subjects relating to aviation. But I suppose not really going into depth as to how your career started, how things started with you. I mean, go cast your mind back to those PPL days. How did things start for Mentor Pilot? Yeah, I I mean, since I was about 13 years old, um, becoming a commercial airline pilot was pretty much everything that I was thinking about. So um, when I had, you know, kind of found that goal and I had something to fixate my my mind on, um, that was all I did. I was uh, trying to improve my schoolwork because I wasn't really that good in school. Um, and looking for ways to get into the industry, you know, what is the best way to to become a pilot in the first case? And in Sweden, we were very lucky and still are um, that we have a government sponsored program, actually two at the moment, where you can apply. Um, there was only 30 spots in the country available, um, but at least they existed. So that was very early on kind of what I what I wanted to do, what I've really really was aspiring to achieve so um i i worked my my butt off basically in order to get as high grades as possible so that i would be at least assured to get an interview because that's how they were making the cut initially and then uh, i had probably the most nervous day of my life when i was actually called for that interview um back in was that 1998 wow um and from there, um, I went to this, this was a series of a couple of days of interviews and tests, um, and I managed to, to make the cut. So I got into this government sponsor school, which meant that I did my natural science kind of um, degree. It's not a degree. It's, a, it's upper, I don't know what you would call it, GCSEs maybe? Yeah. Or A-levels? Mm. Yeah, A-levels like and it, stuff at the higher end. Whatever yeah. you would do when you're 17 years old. Yeah, A-levels, a- yeah. A-levels. <laughs> so instead of doing normal A-levels, I was doing that and flying, doing my commercial licenses, my PPL first and then CPL, IR, ME. Uh, actually, ME came a little bit later. But So we were doing both of it at the same time on school time, which was insanely cool. I like, bet. 
Yeah. Hard work, though, to be fair, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of studying on two levels there, isn't it? Because, I mean, A-levels are a very intense time uh, for anyone who's who, who's done them and that. And, of course, uh, Carlos, I mean, you know from, you know, what, what in, you know, limited flying that you've been able to do. I mean, the, the exams and the studying you do to, you know, start building your commercial license, yeah. that ain't easy either. <laughs> I think m- most people, most people lay their hands to practical flying easy. You know, I think pretty much everyone I've spoke to who I've learned when I've been learning to fly, I've spoke to the practical side of flying. I think most people pick up really easily. It's all the the, the tests that we have mm-hmm. here in the UK, as Pet will know, with the, the nine exams that we have here for mm-hmm. UK PPL. That's that's the tough part. Yeah, and I mean, we were doing this. So we were doing the the actually the ATPL subjects, so all fourteen subjects we were doing at the same time as we were doing our normal the equivalent of A-levels called gymnasium in Sweden. Um, and so we had weeks or days where towards the end of the uh, the training where you could have, for example, a like a meteorology exam on Monday, you could have air law on Tuesday, you could have um, aircraft general on Wednesday, you could have maths on, as in exams, <laughs> on Thursday, and then you could have a physics exam on Friday. Like, the, it was it was crazy. Um, and it was far too many hours. So after my batch was done, they actually changed that program. They skipped it up, and they, they pushed a little bit of it into um, a later course that you could apply for separately. Um, but I did that. So when I was done, it was two years of this training. When I was done with that, I had my CPL IR. I did not have my M- multi-engine. I did not have my MCC. That was still in a, in, in a later course. It was still government-sponsored, but you had to apply to. So um, I did my military service, which was mandatory at the time in Sweden for one year. And uh, and then I applied for, my, for that second part, which I also managed to get into. So in... Um, in 2001, or actually no, 2002, in the spring of 2002, then I had all of my, my licenses ready, including my MCC course. But those of you familiar a little bit with history and aviation history will know that 2002 was not a great time to, to start applying for jobs. So um, I was actually insanely lucky to manage to get an interview with the airline that I'm still working with, actually, uh, in the summer of 2002, that which I passed, so I started my type rating on the on the Boeing 737 in September, actually August, I think, of 2002, and then it was off to the races. Wow. Before the 737 800, uh, how many different aircraft types have you flown previous to that? Obviously, the one you learned to initially fly, learned to fly in, mm. leading up to the 73. How many different types? Yeah, that's the thing. Since I went straight from my school, I basically have only flown the small ad. I've flown the Cessna 152, the 172, the 172 RG, the 182, 182RG, the Piper PA-28, the Cessna 40. That was what I did my multi-engine training on, which is a, is a really cool uh, multi-engine aircraft to do training on, um, turbocharged engines and pressurization and the whole bit. Um, and then from there, I basically jumped straight into the 737. Wow. Wow. So you, you, can't, you kind of fast, well, I'd say fast track. You, you, you went quite, quite big, quite quickly, I think, between um, GA and up to, up to commercial. 
Yeah, I was I was just in that time where that was starting to become a possibility um, because of the rise of the low fare carriers. Um, there was all of a sudden a way for a low low hour cadet to actually get the chance to come into straight into the right seat of a jetliner. Before that, what I grew up with and what my hopes were when I did my training myself was to find like a you know, maybe fly air taxi with uh, a smaller aircraft or something, the King Air or something, or, you know, the best, in the best of worlds would be to find a job to fly cargo at night or mail flights at night on a, um, maybe a short 360 or something. So the fact that I, that I got that chance, and that was basically the only chance there was because the crisis that happened after September 11th had just hit the airline industry and everyone was just furloughing people, pretty much the same situation as we find ourselves in right now. Um, but it goes to show that even in the darkest places, there are still hope. There are still ways to kind of find a way into the industry. I managed to find one, but as you said, I was, I was 20 years old. I did not understand how lucky I was to get that opportunity. Um, but from there on, I've been working close to 900 hours per year um, for many, many years. <laughs> um, and uh, I worked, I was based in London Stansted for two and a half years as a first officer, learning the ropes. And then um, I got a chance to apply for a synthetic flight instructor job as an SFI um, simulator instructor in, in the airline. So I went up to our um, our training base that we have in East Midlands, outside of Nottingham. Uh, and I worked a year there doing quite a lot of instruction and very little flying. And once that year was over, that was kind of the deal, that you did one year and then you got back online again to, to gather the last couple of hours for command upgrade. But given that I didn't fly much during that year, I had to work quite a lot to, to bring the hours, sort of 3,000 hours that you need in order to have a chance for command upgrade. Um, but then I eventually I, I did a little bit of, of um, flight instructing on the side as I was on the line again, as in, in the airline, but not on a regular schedule as we would normally. And then I got my command upgrade when I was 25. Wow. So, so how did how did that come about then, Peter? The the sort of uh, was that for you the the natural progression from from flying to sort of go into the like the tra- the training element of it. Not, not necessarily. Um, my airline um, values initiatives very highly. And um, if you work for something and you show your, that you are willing to take on extra jobs and do, do extra stuff, then they, they, they give you the chance, providing you show that you have the quality to do so. And I, have, I didn't have any instructor experiences before, but I have always loved interacting with people and, and dealing with people. And this is kind of a, it's a different job within the industry. So if you're flying 900, that can become a little bit tedious after a while. But if you can combine that with doing some instructing as well, well then you have the best of two worlds. When you, you instruct for a while, and then you feel like flying, and then you go and fly for a while, and then you feel like instructing, and you never really get tired. So it was, it was me um, who I wanted that, and I got the chance to do that. But not everyone goes that way. Nev, you've got a few questions uh, for Pat, haven't you? Yeah, we've got a couple in the <clears throat> chat room, actually, for you, Petter. Uh, let's have a quick look. Um, so uh, from uh, Tony S., he wants to ask you about your telephone in the background. Uh, <laughs> non-aviation question. Yeah, so, so Tony S., uh, great to speak to you, by the way. Um, this is the telephone that goes straight to Putin in case there is a nuclear... Um, 
Yeah. Right, issue of cool. some sort. Very cool. Unexpected, yeah. yes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, the, the fact is that my uh, my wife um, wanted one of these like old school phones, uh, so she went out promptly on eBay and found one. Uh, so it's not connected. It actually works. The only problem is that whenever you have one of these and you want to dial one for this, dial two for that, it doesn't work. No. Right? Um, <laughs> so, so basically, it's sitting there, it's connected, but uh, we don't use it much. But the, the funny thing is that on my live streams that I do on Sundays, I get maybe 10 or 20 questions about this phone. <laughs> wow, <laughs> really? <laughs> It's, it's 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 more popular than anything else. It's one of those. Yes, as our chat room has just proved, essentially. So, actually, you've you've mentioned uh, your your channel there, Peter. I mean, how did that come about? What was it that um, that sort of made you want to go down that route? I mean, I've been, I've been sort of browsing through it this afternoon, and one of the 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 most interesting things about it for me is the the explainer uh, videos that that you you do. I mean, I'm uh, well known uh, on the show for being a nervous flyer um and one of the things that was quite nice i was i was uh, very lucky that i got to travel with a, a friend of mine owen who's who's cabin crew and so like the first flight that i went on uh, to have somebody like sat next to me explain to me what the the big lumps were under the wings and why there was that really weird noise when things were happening and and you know why did the emergency lights come on is because they'd unplugged the apu thing too earlier which would have normally put me into a flat kind of spin so i mean what was was it about educating the public is that is that what brought that about yeah, there was there was a combination of factors, as it always tends to be when these things happen. Um, so one of those, those factors was my wife basically telling me that you need a hobby, hobby man. Um, you have far too much time on your hands and you need to do something constructive with it. Um, and so that then I started thinking, what can I actually do? Is there something that I enjoy doing? I love instructing. Um, and I was kind of at the moment browsing through the internet, uh, going into various chat rooms like Pete Rune, for example, and others. And I realized that there was a lot of vitriol out there. There was a lot of negativity. And um, whenever anyone went in and asked about the job as an airline pilot, in most cases, they got completely shut down, saying that, don't go down this route. I hate my job for A, B, and C. I don't like it because of that. And what I realized is that the happy pilots out there, the people who love their jobs, they didn't really spend time on the internet. They were out pruning their bushes or enjoying their life with their, uh, with their family. They didn't go into chat rooms. The only ones that went into chat rooms or onto to YouTube or internet at those points was people who needed to vent about something they didn't like. So I thought that that was bad. It, I, I thought that here there is a there is a kind of a lack on, of of information. Someone needs to come in and tell them why they love their job as an mm. airline pilot. And given that at the point then that was about five years ago, I was a, a line training captain, a type rating instructor, and a type rating examiner. Meant that I felt that I could go out and speak about what I thought. And I I, I have to re-emphasize here that that whatever views that I that I share and whatever knowledge that I share is my own. I don't re- represent anyone and I don't pretend to represent everyone. I know that people are unhappy. I have the utmost respect for them, but I am happy. I like what I do. Um, so that's why I started it. I wanted to, to be kind of a, a voice of reason that people who wanted to get into the business of becoming an airline pilot or um, people who wanted to know about aviation could get so from someone who was smiling and was in a good mood and had a positive <laughs> attitude. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we run uh, uh, 
we really struggle with the media here, actually. And, and Nev, you you had quite a good question, didn't you, in in regard uh, to that? Because uh, it, it's something we really struggle with on the show, isn't it? Yeah, I think the thing is that um, I, I was just put thinking we had one of these production meetings one day here and uh, I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to do a sort of a, a Nev's Media Fails section where, you know, you hear and see so many things, uh, whether it's on the internet or whatever, talking about a 737 that's had a problem and there's a picture of an A320 or, or whatever. We actually came to the conclusion that if we did a series on this, it would actually occupy most of the show. Um, and it's been, I think, some of the aviation reporting in some of the channels has been pretty awful uh, from time to time. There's one or two really good aviation journalists that, that really do a nice job, but they are few and far between, I think. I just just wonder what you thought of media coverage. Yeah, too. I mean, media coverage, um, you can understand it because it's a very topical um, topic, this. Like, you need to know a lot in order to be writing something that people like you guys or the people watching this will actually appreciate. There are a few. Um, there is there's one reporter at uh, in the Seattle Times that is absolutely brilliant. Um, but most of the time, the, the, the uh, journalists are just journalists, and they want to try to explain whatever is going on in a way that you know, sells newspapers. So they're not really that interested in getting all of the facts right. They just want to get an aircraft fell down. Why? <laughs> yeah. You know? While we who are interested in this, we want to know what type of aircraft was it, during which phase of flight was it, uh, what engine did fail and stuff. And they, they just don't have neither the time or the interest or, or the, uh, the knowledge to do that. Um, so I, I understand on one side that this is what you get. But this is also why it is, we live in this beautiful world now where you can find loads of other outlets mm. for information if you are really curious. But yeah, I mean, you you would be face planting yourself all, all day long if you were just uh, if you're just listening to media or reading um, yeah. mainstream media. And, and, and it's a common problem for here because, as I say, I'm the first to admit that my, my knowledge of aviation is very, very limited. And so, really, if it hadn't been for being involved in, in this show, um, I would be one of those Luddites who is literally following everything that's going on in the media. And, you know, I mean, I, it, it, the, the, the frustrating thing is, is it's sort of like sensationalism for the sake of being sensationalist you know what i mean yeah. i understand people have got to tell stories but you know uh, the biggest thing that we struggle with is they'll mention the 737 max but put a photograph of an a320 in mm -hmm. the you know just little things like that yeah and, and i mean the, the the other frustrating side is that obviously as my youtube channel has kind of risen and become more and more prevalent um i do get asked by journalists what do i think on certain topics but i consciously do not want to you know engage myself in discussions about events that have not had a final report um, course, yeah. issued yet and whenever a journalist asks me a very pointy question like did the crew do the did was it their fault hmm. that this happened i will always go back to the boring answer of like listen in an accident there's going to be many many reasons for it you know you're not going to be able to pinpoint that it is only the crew's fault it's going to be a technical issue it's going to be an environmental issue it's going to be a pilot issue all of these things come together in the worst possible way well then this is the outcome and the journalists they don't want to hear that no right? they want to hear the captain made a horrible mistake that's why this happened 
And you're never going to get that from anyone who's in really into the industry, or at least you should not get that from anyone who's in the industry. Yeah, I, I mean, speculation is quite a quite a dangerous game, I guess, isn't it? Something you know, with with mm. stuff like like this. Mm. Nev, you got some more questions from uh, the yeah, another chat question room. For, from Tony. A question for you, Peter. Do you think airlines will embrace virtual reality or even augmented reality in the cockpit if they were certified to use it? Um, well, this is very interesting, and I, I really hope so. To a certain extent, they already have with the head-up displays. I mean, the head-up displays, per definition, is augmented reality. So um, I definitely think so. Um, virtual reality, not really, because that would be you sitting with the headset on. Um, I could see something in a very far future where you would have something like that if you have a remote-controlled aircraft um, and there's no cockpit windows, basically. Then you could you could see something like that happening, but now we're talking thirty years into the future or so. Um, but augmented reality and more augmented reality, I think we'll definitely see. Yeah, definitely. Another question from uh, Jack. Um, uh, what did you say? Oh yes. Um, if you do, you know anything now? You know, advice, hints, or tips um, that you picked up if you can give us sort of a one or two sort of major points that you've sort of picked up over your flying career that you could pass on to a, a student pilot, for example. Oh, <laughs> one or two things that I have picked up over my career. Um, right. So where do I start on that? Um, be humble is one, one of the things that I would probably bring up um, because you will inevitably make mistakes throughout this journey. It doesn't matter how much experience that you have, how much, um, how much you rise in rank or how much you rise in seniority within the airline you work for. Make sure that you stay with your feet planted on the ground when it comes to your own attitude. Um, so that goes as a first officer. There's a lot of first officers that comes in with the attitude to come from a good school, for example, that they know more than they actually do. That gets taken out of them very quickly during training because it's so much that you need to learn. Um, but that attitude of knowing that you can always make a mistake and that you always need to continue to evolve and continue to learn, that needs to come with you. The day that that is not there, that's the day that you should think about retiring from this business because it is really that important. And it becomes even more important when you become a captain. Because if you're sitting as a captain thinking that you will not make mistakes, you will make some horrible mistakes and it's unlikely that your colleague is going to pick up on them because you're being a douche. You know, so so staying humble and, and understanding that no matter how much experience you have, you can still make very bad mistakes. Listen to people around you and use the team that you have is probably the the one um, thing that I think that you need to bring with you throughout your career. Right. Um, that was one. Was that good enough? Yeah, very, very, that's good. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. It's uh, actually yeah. Nev. Um, I was going to say that, uh, Jenny in Rome, uh, one of our uh, listeners in Rome, has got a very quite an interesting question. Actually, Nev, isn't she in the chat room? Yeah, Jenny's British, but she's lived in Rome for many years, and she says, "Can you ask Petter about what he thinks about flying in Italy, the airports and ATC, etc." Oh, it used to be. Uh, it used to be bad. Um, when I started my, uh, my my airline experience, flying uh, flying into Italy could be really funky. 
um, on the air traffic control side of things. But it's had, it has gotten a lot better. And now flying in Italy is just like flying in any other country in Europe. Like the air traffic control is very professional, very good. Um, English level is, is, has risen enormously since 2022 when I started, sorry, 2002 when I started. Uh, and uh, um, I mean, the only thing that can be dodgy when you fly to Italy, but it goes for Spain and for every of the southern airports is if you come into sudden wind drops, which actually happens in northern Italy sometimes. So coming into to, uh, you know, Venice, for example, when it's snowing, that can be an issue. But um, but otherwise than that, I, I thoroughly enjoy flying into Italy. It's so beautiful to fly there. This is probably yeah. the most loaded question I could probably ask you, to be fair. But do you have a favourite destination or airport that you, you love to fly into? As a pilot, I mean. Ooh, if I had a euro for every time that I had that question. Sorry, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, like... The way that I see it, there's a couple of places that you love to go to. I love flying back home to where I come from. So I come from northern Sweden, uh, a small town called Örnsköldsvik. And for a while, we had um, a destination called Skellefteå, which uh, is close to Örnsköldsvik. So I actually got to fly home. During the descent, I flew by. I could see kind of where I grew up. And then I came in and landed. So the airport in itself is nothing special. But for me personally, flying up there and seeing where I grew up and noticing that I'm sitting in a 737 doing this really cool job, that is, that is a special thing. So that, that will always be close to me. Otherwise, as a line training captain, I enjoy flying to places which are not complicated. Okay? Right. Because <laughs> that gives me the least chances of making some, of a fool out of myself and gives me the most chances to, to, to teach. So a great example of that is Malta. Um, Malta is yes, Malta is is beautiful to fly into. It is an island, which means there are very little mountains to worry about. Uh, it's a nice long runway. It has ILSs from both directions, and ATC is absolutely spotless. It's perfect. So flying into Malta is is um, is always a pleasure, and it has a lot of things with Malta as well that can be a bit tricky. Like you can get shortcuts, for example. So when it comes to high energy approaches and how to do descent planning, it's perfect from from that perspective. And you can choose whatever approach you want. So if you want to teach a non-position approach, you just tell them and you'll get that. If you want to do an ILS approach, a Cat three approach, all of that is available. So Malta is like a toolbox um, that you can use, which I thoroughly enjoy. Right then. If you come to beautiful places to fly to, you have places like Perugia, for example, which is just north of, of uh, Rome, which is is really tricky to fly into because it's like a cauldron in between the mountains, but it is mind-blowingly beautiful to fly to. So, yeah, as you can see, there's there's loads of places. Mm, okay, and, and the, the obvious uh, other question to go with this, is there a destination or an airport, if you see it on your details, that you could just go, ugh? Um, Leeds, right? Yes, <laughs> fair enough. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, yes. No, I mean Leeds is like <laughs> it, it, when you see Leeds coming up, you know that you're going to have pretty much the opposite of what it just said. Um, right. You're yes. going, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot of traffic around. You're going to have this short, bumpy runway, which is kind of like landing on an aircraft carrier, <laughs> and it is always, <laughs> always, always crosswind there, and the crosswind is howling. Yeah. So to Leeds is one of those places that you know that this it's going to be challenging. I always take the flight there myself. I don't give that to one of my my cadets. <laughs> wow. 
gosh. Is, 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 have, have you had any... Um, uh, this, this is a really odd question, I suppose, to ask a, a, a pilot. Have you got, had any memorable incidences during your flying, uh, that um, either, either good or bad? Like, Yeah, I mean, the, the, best, the best experience, one of the best experiences that I've had was when I had the honor to deliver a brand new aircraft from Seattle to, um, to Dublin. Um, going over there, seeing the facilities in Boeing, um, picking up, you know, basically almost pulling the, the, the like the plastic off the screens on, on 737, and flying up over past the skyline of Seattle, you know, past Canada, over Greenland, seeing the Northern Lights, um, past Iceland, down to Dublin. It's a 10-hour flight, and I got to do it together with a friend of mine. Actually, who was an instructor um, now, and he was working up in East Midlands when I was an instructor there. So that was probably one of the highlights of my my career so far. Um, when it comes to incidents and accidents, as you might experience, as you might understand, I can't really go into detail. No, 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 there. no. no. Um, but the, the fact is that the 737 is such a remarkably good aircraft that you can go on whole career without having anything that is even close to what you guys would consider uh, a, a made an emergency. I've had the old technical thing. You know, we all do. You have had some issues with flaps, for example. Um, obviously, medical emergencies uh, happen from time to time, unfortunately. But these are things that do, that you deal with, providing that you just cool down and you deal with it according to your um, non-normal checklist. It's not a big deal, really. Indeed. Uh, as, uh, to be fair, Tony S. in the chat room is actually uh, agreeing with you, uh, saying that even as a passenger, Leeds is awful. So there we are. That's, uh, that's a bit of good news for you. He's also got a great, uh, a great question that I'd, I'd follow. There seems to be a misconception amongst the public that low-cost carriers aren't as safe or cut corners compared to legacy airlines. How do you think the training differs between those airlines? Yeah, um, first of all, that is incorrect, right? That, that I can say with absolute certainty. Um, the the low-cost airlines have an extremely high focus on safety for the simple reason, if you think about it, that if, if, pilot, if, if there are passengers out there who have that perception, the only thing they need in order to not fly with one of those air, airlines ever again is a confirmation of that. Right. So the just for their own self-preservation, the uh, the low fare airlines are extremely safety minded. Uh, they spend a lot of money and manpower on training and on flying new aircraft and having good um, good uh, engineering, for example, to make sure that they don't fly with with anything that they shouldn't be. So that's one thing. And when it comes to when it comes to training, um, I've actually I have a funny story there. Well, I was training, and I, I obviously I fly. For for a, a big low fare airline myself. Um, and we were doing training and at a certain point back in 2005, uh, there was a huge need of pilots on our side. And on the other side, there was quite a lot of uh, flag carriers, of legacy carriers that had too many pilots. So there was um, an exchange done where a flag carrier, a Scandinavian flag carrier, um, offered people to come and fly for us for a limited amount of time, as in like a six month contract or something like that. Mm. And these pilots, they came in thinking, obviously, that now, you know, we're just going to have to do the minimum possible here, just a tick in the box so that it's legal, <laughs> and then we're going to be out of producing online. And what ended up happening was that because the training standards are set very, very high, and because the captains that come in are going to fly with potentially cadets or uh, first officers with very little experience, 
they have to pass the bar. Like they have to go past what we um, what we think is good enough. So some of these these pilots that came in on a six month contract, I think it might even have been a three month contract, spent two of those months in training <laughs> in order to be released out online. Wow. And they couldn't believe it. They were paid as they were doing this, yeah. but they would not have entered onto the line without them, you know, getting up to the bar that, that we had set. And the reason that happened was because low fare airlines, especially the one that I fly for, have very, very particular standard operating procedures. Um, while the more experienced pilots you have, the less SOPs you generally need um, because everyone has experience that they can fall back on. If you fly with with uh, first officers, for example, they go straight out of flight school and into the right seat, they, they need very, very detailed standard operating procedures to hold on to in, until they get experience. And those standard operating procedures, you need to know them. And instead of having a manual that might be this thick, now the manual is this thick <laughs> and you need to know that before you go out online. So, um, so that's a very long question to a very, a very long answer to a very short question. Well, and we've a, a very good friend of the, the, the show, um, Captain Al, uh, he specializes in what they call a, f- a fear of flying courses to, to help people get over their fear of flying. And, and I was lucky enough that I got to do one of those because before I, uh, ironically, I was involved in this show and I had a fear of flying. So Al very kindly sort of helped me do that. And I asked that very question to him. And one of the things that he said during that chat, actually, that is if you lose, um, the, you know, the low cost model is dead if you ever have a reputation for bad safety because you know these things can't afford to go tech that's why their preventative maintenance is is uh, you know far beyond perhaps many legacy carriers because they cannot afford for that airplane not to be where it's supposed to be on time yeah yeah no no, no absolutely and and it's absolutely right that's what i was saying in the, in the beginning of that very long answer <laughs> that that, that that, that that's the thing you know safety is paramount you have to you can never let that slip um because the one time that something happens and people go into the newspapers which will love kind of like they will be like sharks if something would happen that has that can be traced back to safety deficiencies that will be that's it you know and they are well aware of that actually pat you're talking about training and stuff obviously you you, you instruct and uh, on on the uh on the aircraft one of the biggest costs as we all know as a young person who may be starting to progress into a career in aviation is the whole training and the cost of the licenses and then obviously the 80 all the different licenses that go with it and most of this is has to be funded by you know the the, the person who's who's wanting to learn to fly so you were talking about costs on the show of over a hundred thousand pounds upwards to get to you know to get to an airline and you've got to fund that yourself how how do you think yourself that this impacts on the industry and do you think there should be more kind of courses for younger people to be able to like a um you know like something they could join like a you know to 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 be able to afford to be able to fly to learn to fly um yes (laughs) no no uh, i mean Obviously, um, this is a major issue. Um, it's less of an issue when there is plenty of pilots available. It is much more of an issue when there's lack of pilots. And now we are like 
before this COVID thing happened, um, we were looking down the barrel at some serious shortage of pilots around 2022, 2023. The simple reason that all of the baby boomers are going into retirement and there are huge backlogs for both Boeing and Airbus when it comes to plane deliveries. And those planes need to be flown by someone while a huge bunch of pilots are actually going into retirement. So, you know, we saw that happening. And in such an environment, then you need to avail of all of the best people out there, not all of the best people with enough money. Okay. So, so yes, I, uh, like I see, this this is going to be a bump, potentially a huge bump in the road. Um, but eventually, we are going to end up in that situation anywhere. And it won't be feasible for people, especially people from low-income households uh, who cannot, whose parents cannot put their house up for remortgaging in order to pay for the training. This is going to have to be a mechanism to, to sort that out. Now, I was lucky myself to go through a government-sponsored program, and there are a few of those. There is in Sweden, I think there is in Finland and Norway, kind of partially. There is one in France as well. Um, I know that there has been talks about it in the UK as well, but that's going to be a teeny tiny little fraction of the pilots needed. Um, now, this is one of the big reasons why me and Andy O'Shea um, started the Airline Pilot Club. I don't know if you have you heard about it. Yeah, we have. I have from your channel, but perhaps you'd like to explain it uh, better. Yeah, sure. So we, um, Andy O'Shea is the ex-head of training of, of Ryanair. And in his role doing that, he saw that there, there was an issue with um, with finding pilots and finding the best pilots and also the pilots that were coming in was was failing uh, the entry exams at a, an alarming rate right it was almost a 50 percent failure rate when they came in and these were pilots that had paid those 100 120,000 pounds for training um and they were still failing so the issue and i obviously from my point of view i have my whole social media following where budding pilots, people who want to get into the industry, contact me and ask, how can I do this? I can't afford to do this. How is, you know, what should I do? So we looked into what can we, is there anything we can do here? Can we leverage his contacts within the industry and my contacts on the pilot side uh, in order to do something good here? And the, the concept that we came up with basically was trying to find the right people. This is right people, no matter if they have money or not. And the way to do that is actually um, giving access to something that we will call an indicative assessment so that people can go in and say that you, your son ha or daughter has, a, has an inkling that they want to become a pilot. And, and you might have to, to fork out that money in one way or another. It would be nice to know whether or not they would be suitable to, to do the job in the first place. So the indicative assessment that we are working on uh, and soon going to release actually together with Aon, which does a lot of assessment work for major flight schools and airlines out there, um, does that. You come in, you sit at home, you do an, an assessment on several parts of your, um, of your aptitude, your personality, your English language skills. And then, and this is crucial, instead of getting a yes or no, which you normally get from these tests, you get feedback. So you get either green light, yes, you have what it takes to become a pilot. Um, and in that case, you will then be shuffled off, and I'll get to that in a second, towards a school that, the, that we, me and Andy, have actually checked to be good enough. Or you get almost ready. And 
here you'll get pointed at, right? We think that you are ready in these areas, but you need to improve on your numeracy or your English language skills. So here are the tools that you can use in order to get better at these. And then crucially, you can also get not ready. And in that case, you can obviously still work on all of these things, but it's a clear indication that maybe you should be looking at doing something else because there's so many parts of your personality that you are going to struggle with so that it's unlikely that even if you do the training, you'll be able to get through the, um, to an airline at the end. So that was the first point, trying to find the people and making sure that no one, and this is something I, I feel very strongly about, making sure no one goes in and pays 120000 and then finds out that they're not suitable. Because that is a tragedy. Like, and, it, and it happens quite often. The airline, sorry, the, the flight schools out there, their, their primary business is to try to get people in to train to get money. Uh, obviously, they... They want to help their students because it's good for them if their students get jobs. But there are quite a few flight schools out there who just needs to get money and who needs to produce. And they don't really care that much what they do. So if they, if they, um, the people get through their, to, to an airline job or not. So that goes to the second part of our kind of three-stage rocket here. And that is once you have been green-lighted, then we look at flight schools out there and we send out a very senior team of um, people who checks the flight schools to, that they have the correct curriculum, that they have good instructors, good aircraft, and crucially that their economy is good enough so that you don't pay the money in and the flight school goes bankrupt and grabs your money and disappears. And then on the other side of that, we, are all, we were also working with banks, financial institutions, to try to use this indicative assessment and the assessments to these approved flight schools as a kind of security for the banks to actually lend money. So this would be unsecured loans towards people who could not afford to be pilots otherwise so, because so, they had proven that they had the quality needed. So, so it's essentially um, like uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like offering a bit of security to the banks, essentially, to say that this person certainly has what it takes, if you like, to be because they've passed these preliminary tests. Yes, um, and it would... To, together with this would also be uh, would also be um, an insurance policy that would insure the banks towards the the, uh, the the training, so that there is there there was a mechanism in case something happened medically, for example. So, so literally back. minimizing all the risks. Minimizing the risk. This is what we were working with, and we were working hard, and we were very close to uh, several banks um, that were interested in this. Um, and then COVID hit. So um, obviously, with that, the the, the kind of um, like the risk assessment from the banks changed. So right now, this is still not dead, by the way, because the idea is still very good. But right now in the current environment, we have kind of put the, the funding side of this a bit on ice. But if this changes, which I think it will within two to three years, then that uh, is still going to be available. And then at the end, once we've gotten them into to the right people, into the right schools, then we would leverage whatever contacts we had with airlines who needs pilots and show them that this we can quality assure the whole way from the individual through the school, would you want to give these people a chance of an interview? Not guaranteeing jobs, obviously, because you can't do that. But you can, you can try to get partners to, to guarantee at least an interview for it because you can kind of, you can go back and see how the quality of the chain works. But this is what we're doing in the Airline Pilot Club. And we are, at the moment, because of COVID, we were supposed to open up now in, in, um, in May. But um, we changed it over to becoming kind of an, a, an 
site for information. So people, both uh, flight schools and pilots could come in and ask questions to us. And we would use, um, sorry, that's my dog. We would use Andy's connections and my connections to try to find answers. So that's what we've been doing up until now. But um, towards, in a few months or so, we are going to open up for membership and we're going to try to do all of those things that we've just said. And now if you've got uh, a couple more questions, haven't you, in uh, yes. from, from uh, the chat room. Question from John. Um, we'll be talking about the 737 MAX production resuming a little later on. What excites you about the aircraft and what's it like learning a new aircraft type as an instructor? Well, what excites me with it is that I think that it's a very, it's going to be, especially now once all of the little quirks or all of the, the things that they've found is going to be finished. Because now, um, once they've gone through this uh, certification, then it's going to be a very good aircraft. And I'm looking forward to, to fly um, an aircraft with, you know, the kind of efficiency that comes with it. I am um, myself, I think a lot about the environment <laughs> nowadays as a good Swede. Um, so I like the fact that it is more environmentally friendly, that it's more efficient, um, that it has better avionics. You know, I like the screens, it's, it's nicer. Um, but it's always a challenge to, to learn a new aircraft and learn it to the point where you can instruct others. In order to do that, you need to not only learn how it works, but also why it works that way and in what ways it might not work unless you're careful. So it's a much longer process in order to be really proficient to teach on it. And that's something that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, wow, great. And uh, one other question um, from Tony. Who were your aviation role models? Oh, um, well, I mean, I, I actually, I didn't read too much literature and things when I, uh, when I grew up. Um, but my dad had a PPL. So that's kind of how I got into it in the first place. Um, given that he was flying and I got to fly with him a little bit, then that he was obviously my role model from a very young age. Um, and I don't think that from then on that I had any real, um, like any celebrity role models. So uh, an urgent question from Myla in the chat room. Uh, she says she will literally burst if she doesn't know the answer to this. Uh, is uh, what are the name of your dogs? I need to know, she says. Okay. So, <laughs> Pachi. So this one is called Pachi. Oh. He's, 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 never a long, he's never more than half a meter away from me at any given time during any time of the day, including <laughs> the night. Oh, wow. Um, the other one, the white one, is called Molly. So Pachi and Molly are the names of the dogs. That's very cool. So, so what's the, what's the breed? Uh, it's a toy poodle. Oh wow! So it's a, it's a pure breed toy poodle. They don't get bigger than that. And how 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 long have you have you you had a um, Molly? We've had for three years now. Pachi we've had for two. Wow. I got nothing they, to do with aviation, do, I know, but <laughs> I was going to say they, they do focus quite heavily on your on your YouTube channel, Peter. <laughs> yeah. No, they uh, like that's that because he's never more than half a meter away from me, and because he cries literally if he is, I couldn't really lock him outside. He would be jumping up on the windows if I would. So that's how he started into the channel. I literally just gave up and said, "All right, the dog is here." He gets to be in the videos. But now what I've found, which is really interesting, is that the people who are really interested in aviation, they watch my videos and they, they really listen and they try to get all of the nuances and stuff. Now, they obviously have spouses, either boyfriends or girlfriends, who just tolerate them watching my videos because of the dog. So the fact that I have a dog there and they can sit and they can kind of look at the dog and like, look at the dog, is cute, it's doing something now. That makes, makes it more tolerable <laughs> for them. 
I bet. I bet. Actually, Petra, we're gonna we're gonna sort of let let you go soon. Let you get back to your busy life. But another question I, I actually have for you: um, Do you do any GA flying yourself, other than obviously your your main job? But do you ever get a chance to do any um, you know kind of GA Cessna one fifty? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And the fact is that no, at the moment I, I haven't done any GA since two thousand and five. I think, um, oh. and the, the, you know yourself, flying GA. Um, requires quite a lot of time and dedication. And since I have two young boys, kids, family, live here in Spain, it just hasn't been, I, I haven't been able to motivate saying that, okay, now I've been flying for a week, now I'm going to go and fly a little bit. So that hasn't been possible. However, as my kids are now growing up and I'm starting to feel the itch a little bit, I think I'm going to pick up uh, general aviation flying. I've lost my single pilot um, rating, so I need to pick that up again. So I need to find out how to do that. But I'm 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 thinking about doing that and maybe um, taking the kids out for a spin soon. Oh wow, I like the sound of that. Now uh, you probably noticed actually that uh, we've been joined by our other host uh, who's been, had a busy day. Basically, he's been flying today. And there's always one question that we tend to sort of uh, uh, ask our guests uh, when we get to the end of it. But uh, Armando, if you've got any other qu- questions you'd like to ask, do uh, jump in now. But we'll leave you to ask the question we always ask. Hello, Peter. At uh awesome having you on the show i've been actually listening to most of your uh, interview and hello to apache and molly that's a amazing career that you've had and that's just something that over here is so rare to be able to have as carlos kind of said a fast track career and and to be honest that's everybody's dream over here we've always looked at the european model saying man i wish i wish we had something like that so congratulations to you and and on the channel and the airline pilot club is is something that uh it's just great that, that you're doing that. That That is something that is missing from the industry. I know when I was in the military, uh, we had a very similar system of testing people's aptitude, uh, both to be in the military and as, as well as being uh, an Air Force pilot. Um, so that, I think that following that model is is an, an excellent way to do so. I appreciate you doing that. Thank you, Manuel. Nice to see you, finally. Here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I guess I do have the question of, of honor, which is uh, – Peter, if money was no object and you could fly any aircraft in the world, past, present, or maybe even future, what aircraft would that be? The Concorde. Yeah. The Concorde. That is such a popular answer. It's such a it's great the correct answer, answer too, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, um, like, like it, it, it's one of those things that, of course, if you had a chance to fly that aircraft, that iconic aircraft with everything that it could do, um, of course, you would jump at the chance. Um, the other aircraft out there, there are some really, really cool things. Um, I mean, the 747 is a beautiful aircraft. I would love to fly that before it, it retires. So I think I'll probably have a few more years of, of chance at that. Um, and then the things coming up, like the boom, for example, would be cool to try. But there's nothing that's going to come close to the kind of like aura of the Concorde and what the Concorde stood for, the kind of height of the airline industry, the coolest part of the airline industry. And yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer. And as soon as you said that, I thought, well, you may get the chance with the boom aircraft in, in the future. We'll see you in a space suit and a, and a, a, a black uh, uniform or something like that. That, that would be cool. Like if anyone, anyone listening to this and you have some influence, 
you know, I'm sure the guys can give you my number. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're, we're rapidly running out of time, and I know you've got a, a, a hectic schedule. So, uh, please, uh, plug your channels. If they are living under a rock and they haven't come across your channels and, and that, how do they get in touch? How do they watch what you do? All right. So, um, the Mentor Pilot channel, if you go to YouTube and search Mentor Pilot, you'll find it. It's, it's spelled wrong. It's spelled Mentor because Mentor obviously was taken when I started my, uh, my <laughs> channel. So it's Mentor. It's a tour that I'm giving for men and women. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> Mentor Pilot is, is the name of the channel. Um, but if you guys want to kind of really interact and you want to talk to chat to me, for example, another aviation um, enthusiasts and people who are afraid of flying as well because um, there are quite a few people that are following the channel because they are nervous flyers then you can also download my mentor aviation app all right uh, it's a free downloaded app it's i did it in order to create a forum for people to to be able to speak to each other but also now there's a lot of aviation news so whenever something happens in the aviation world i have a great team of people who pushes out these news so, by the way, if you don't like notifications, you can go to settings and set those notifications. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> it will be dinging quite often. But it's, it's one of those things that I, that I really want people to do. So get that up and, uh, and enjoy the community. Oh, well, I, I, it, uh, Petra, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, yeah. th- thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure being here. If you, if you want me to be on at any other given time, just, just let me know. I'm here. We love it. Thank, we'll, we'll, we'll take you up on that, definitely. Well, all the best, all the best for the future, Peter. And as as uh, Matt said, a big thanks to you for taking time out of your Friday evening and joining us. Thank you very much, guys. Have a lovely weekend and uh, take care of yourselves. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. All the best. Bye bye. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Just reading off the show notes. Well, hello there. So sorry, gentlemen, you'll have to stop your chat now. We're back live. Uh, what? How? How cool was that? What a lovely man, eh? Yeah, it's great to speak to him. I'm yeah. glad, glad we got him on. Glad we got him on. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's time for a little bit of business as usual. As I say, this show is yeah. in a slightly different order to normal. Um, and uh, so like the weekly roundup that we, that we usually like to do, and of course there was quite a big event uh, for, for our family, shall we say, uh, and that uh, it was involving a certain Acme pilot. Oh, yes, that's right. Indeed. I'd, I'd almost forgotten. Right. Um, <laughs> Had you. <laughs> yes. As, as, yes, uh, yes so. of course... Um, our good friend Captain Jeff, uh, we think he was on his final flight uh, on the MD88 um, uh, last week, mm. or oh, well, earlier this week actually, wasn't it? Um, so uh, it will be interesting to see what happens to his flying uh, later on. Um, but um, 
the uh, MG88 is going to depart on its last scheduled revenue flight uh, on the morning of Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, June the 2nd from Washington Dulles International Airport to um, Delta's hub in Atlanta. Uh, Earlier that same morning, uh, Delta Flight 90, uh, operated by an MD-90 aircraft, is going to fly from Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston to Atlanta. Uh, and once on the ground in Atlanta, the aircraft will join several other MD-88s and MD-90s as they fly to Blytheville, uh, Arkansas, uh, where they'll be officially retired from the fleet. So um, we'll have to see what Jeff ends up on next, won't we? But, mm. um, yeah, really, really, um, he got a great send-off as well, didn't he? If you have anyone oh, did, yeah, watched yeah. Uh, APG episode 427, which will probably be out by the time this episode's out, um, yeah, have a look. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Uh, uh, now, uh, we, we, we've also got to do some corrections, unfortunately, uh, this week. Oh. Uh, I know, I know, absolutely. Usually caused by me, let's be honest. So uh, we'd like to uh, make uh, a couple of small corrections from episode 319 uh, that were, as we're not infallible, and sometimes John even get, even John gets caught napping. So there we are. So first of all, uh, it's more of an update uh, as we were speaking about the developing incident last week, which was the, the course of the, uh, the Pakistan International Airport airlines accident uh that last week we ended up uh with an update saying that seven people had survived unfortunately we now know that only two of the 99 people on board survived four on the ground were taken to hospitals with burns and no casualties on the ground have been reported by the authorities uh pakistan's aviation minister announced a uh preliminary uh report which will be released on the 22nd of june 2020 and the flight data recorder and cockpit recorder uh, voice cockpit recorder have both been found uh the french bea the which is is it the oh dear how do i say le bureau ed uh, oh, uh, Catarien. <laughs> very good lovely thanks for that anyway they're going to be taking uh, both of those units to france for repair to download and analysis and the second one actually involves you and me armando uh, we had an email this afternoon from a lovely chap by the name of Chris Marsh, actually, who we've got some great feedback to look forward to next week. Uh, we've got a, a couple of uh, bits that he sent in for us, so very much looking forward to sharing those with you. Anyway, it's, the email says, Dear Matt, you'll be aware of the concerns that I often have uh, that, that have often been expressed about the increasing reliance on automation and te- technology in aviation, which has become widely known as the children of the magenta effect. Uh, it seems from your comment on the last show, episode 319, that this effect may have been spreading to you to the use of electronic devices for navigation in the coach driving community. Whilst it is an understandable mistake on the part of our lovely overseas ally Armando, whatever would the uh, whatever would the Nalda old coach driver of past generations think if they heard you agree with him that RAF Waddington was in fact in Yorkshire? Uh, so that was my fault. Now think again seriously about they love uh, your unique contribution to an excellent show and lo- looking on the bright side at least you did pronounce waddington correctly so there is something else. uh the move by the red arrows is in fact hardly a move at all scampton is about five miles north of lincoln and waddington is around uh, the same distance south of the city so a distance of around 10 miles or so in total although they uh, will be taking off and landing back at waddington the team will continue to practice in the restricted flying zone over scampton uh just uh, as they are at the moment this announcement has been very widely welcomed 
welcomed in the area and followed a petition on the parliamentary website asking that the display team be kept in Lincolnshire, which was supported by over 11,000 people. It might not be widely known, but it has become a tradition that following national flypaths such as the recent VE Day flight down the Mall in London, the team on their return to Lincoln give the city its own red, white and blue smoke salute before breaking formation to land and long may that continue. Uh, all the best, uh, Chris Marsh. Also in the same episode we said that it was episode 31 in which Matt's first pe- feedback was in the show um, and uh, if anyone was looking the correct episode was actually episode 25 so there we are just uh, that's Ooh. all uh, that's all the uh, corrections now i'm not sure what's going well, something about chat room here I, i'm yes yes we uh, obviously need to welcome everyone who has Very joined so. us this evening into the chat room thank you to everyone all the usual family members in there as always mm. plus a few extras it's good to see some, yeah. uh, some, some great questions stuff. from everyone as always yeah some great questions yeah, yeah so thanks uh, to everyone for joining us but we have got uh, we've got lots of news to cover this week haven't we gents yeah, well, not as much as normal, to be fair. Not uh, as much as normal. We have got a few stories coming. Yeah, absolutely. So, if everybody's ready, yeah. let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story, and uh, this one is. Uh, from uh, Financial Times, this one. So it's a posh uh, publication, not like that other rag that uh, Matt normally gets, the sun. So uh, EasyJet plans to cut up to 30% of its uh, 15,000-strong workforce as it becomes the latest airline to warn that the aviation industry faces a slow recovery uh, from the upheaval wrought by coronavirus. Feel free to drink. Uh, the low-cost carrier said it needed to axe around 4,500 jobs as it looks to reshape the business on the basis that passenger demand will not return to 2019 levels until 2023. Wow, that is a few years off. EasyJet on Thursday also laid out plans to fly about 30% of its normal capacity across July, August and September. That's good news for me, uh, which means taking a more cautious approach than budget rivals Ryanair and Wizz Air. An interview uh, with the Financial Times, EasyJet's chief executive John Lagrin acknowledged that some other airlines were more optimistic of a recovery before 2023. He said, I think we have done it on a prudent uh, level and we believe on a conservative uh, but still realistic basis. True for the matter. Nobody knows Nobody would be happier than ourselves if demand was picking up earlier than that, he said. As well as cutting staff, EasyJet said it was looking at closing bases at airports. Uh, the carrier said it would also reduce its aircraft fleet to about 302 aircraft by the end of 2021, which is 51% lower than was anticipated before the pandemic struck. It comes at a difficult time for EasyJet. The budget carrier is in the middle of a battle with its founder and biggest shareholder, Stelios, over a multi-billion pound order for 107 Airbus aircraft. The airline held a general meeting last week in response to Sir Stelios's call to remove four directors, uh, and about 58% of shareholders voted against, uh, against each resolution. On Thursday, Sir Stelios hit out at EasyJet again and said it should stop paying Airbus money first by cancelling the other aircraft order rather than cutting staff. 
Uh, earlier this month, he offered a multi-million pound reward for uh, useful information, he said, in his fight to stop the aircraft order. Mr. Lundgren said the company had sought to establish a constructive relationship with Sir Stelios following the uh, general meeting last week. The key thing was the vote was so clear and that there was no support whatsoever for the argument to terminate uh, the Airbus contract. Therefore, that needs to be considered, decided, and now one needs to move on, he said. So, good point to pick up from that story is the fact that uh, EasyJet are hoping to push things forward in mm. September. Um, that's uh, that's good news for me, so hopefully I might make out tomorrow this year with you, Nev. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, e- definitely. Ever hopeful. Uh, and just to clarify also that the airline didn't say exactly how many jobs that would go, but it employed, uh, as far as the BBC is concerned, which is where this um, this clarification has come from, so they, they currently employ 15,000 people uh, at the start of 2020, therefore 30% is around about 4,500 jobs, just to sort of give you uh, a figure. But, job losses are still still honestly this, oh, no, this whole it, thing is just is it? yeah no it, the whole thing is horrendous isn't it there's uh, not a lot to it, it's i don't know i mean you you can understand why airlines are doing it aren't they because at the end of the day there isn't a bottomless uh pit of money there is there but uh it's uh it's 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 very worrying times isn't it i take everyone. it things are still quiet uh your side armando in regards to uh to flying yeah, at least for my company and companies like mine, things seem to be pretty stable. But as we've just talked about with Captain Jeff, you know, over at Acme, there are just moves happening in the aviation industry over here on this side of the pond that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, like we say every week, it's just going to be interesting to see what the next year or two holds and we'll see where we come out on the other side of it. Yeah, definitely. Okay, on to the next story then, and this is uh, UK Aviation dot News website. Here uh, we go, Matt. Go on, uh, do it. get out of your system. Get <laughs> okay, it off your system. Then. All right then. Major fire at Bombardier's aircraft factory in Belfast. So a major fire has broken out at the Bombardier uh, aircraft factory, which is on Queen's Island next to Belfast City Airport. So pictures from the scene showed massive plumes of smoke rising from the site that uh, as it as it tore through the roof of one building where the fuselage sections are made. The fire damaged machinery and the roof of the building, uh, but no aircraft sections or parts. Uh, a total of 50 firefighters tackled the blaze and at the time of the incident a spokesman for Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service said that uh, NIFRS is currently attending a scene at Bombardier Airspace uh, the uh, airport road Belfast the incident involves a factory unit on fire Uh, the service received the first call to the incident around about 20-45 hours with our first resource in attendance within two minutes that's a pretty good uh, pretty impressive response time isn't it uh, there are currently a total of six pumping uh, appliances one aerial appliance and a high volume pump with a total of 50 firefighters and supervisory offers officers engaged in fighting uh, firefighting operations to contain the fire members of the public are asked to avoid the area of the airport road to enable firefighting operations to continue unhindered uh, the site at Belfast Queens Island site makes uh, wings and fuselage sections for the Airbus A220 aircraft. The uh, the fire was brought under control uh, on Sunday evening. In a statement 
Bombardier said, thanks to the incredible work of the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue, along with our health and safety operation teams, yesterday's fire at our Belfast Queen's Island site was contained within one area of the factory. Uh, while there is damage to some machinery and a portion of the roof, there is no damage to any aircraft structures or uh, aerostructure assembly lines. Following thorough safety inspections, work has resumed as normal in other areas of the factory. We will work with our customers and suppliers to address any production concerns. Uh, however, we are confident that there will be minimal impact to customer delivery. So it's one of those uh, rare occasions where you sort of... Um, uh, where you sort of forget uh, that actually uh, a fire suppression system going off was actually a good thing on, on this uh, this occasion. <laughs> but never mind. I mean, I just popped the picture up there. I mean, that's that that's very dark. It's smoke, fairly hefty it? fire. Yeah, that's that, that's quite a strong mm. fire. But I, I, they sound confident that it's not going to have much of an impact on 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 their their functioning, don't they? Mm. Yeah, it could have been a, a a good storage area or some kind of support area, but I can I can guarantee you that the folks over at Bombardier are are just going to want to erase May of 2020 from their <laughs> memories because <laughs> yeah. you know it's been a tumultuous month with them selling off the mm. CRJ line to Mitsubishi and all the stuff going on with Boeing uh, and Embraer and everything that I've been seeing in business aviation, the, you know, we continue to sort of try to find hard data on, on business aviation. And it's actually harder to find than, than you would think. And, and the last research that I've shown that I've um, found has also pointed towards business aviation is also suffering quite a bit, which is, you know, Bombardier's with their Learjet, the Challenger, the global, um, those were all great programs that everybody was excited about last year and now this year you know everybody's taking a hit so yeah it's um so moving on to the next story then and uh, a bit of a, a denial from a, a certain big name in the aviation industry nev yes it's on the samchewy.com website we like sam chewy because mm. he does some good good blogs here's a thing i didn't know about guess how many um a380s that uh, emirates operate Oh, um, 20. Without looking at the story. 20? No. I, I'm just guessing because I'm being good. I'm doing as you All asked right. and, and not looking 115. at the story. 115. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, That's a, a few quid's worth. Which is a lot. <laughs> well, yes. Um, <laughs> and it says that uh, during a recent interview with the Financial Times, the president of Emirates, Sir Tim Clark, said that their current fleet of A380s, which will cease to be manufactured from next year, would continue to play an important part in the airline's future. He expects to have all their planes, planes flying in two years' time, including their fleet of A380s. We're not getting rid of any of them, apart from, I think, three that are coming out and nine 777s that were scheduled to come out this year, he says. He also said the carrier is planning to fully deploy all of their aircraft in the summer of 2022, based on their outlook for a recovery in air travel, which will take up to two years. The A380 has a place in the Emirates International Network on the scale it had before, he says. Albeit not today or fully next year, but the year after, I think, there'll be a place for it 
and I think it's going to be extremely popular. Uh, Sir Tim dismissed speculation that Emirates would permanently decommission a large portion of its 115-strong A380 fleet. At the moment, he says, I've got 115 sitting there. We're always going to be, we're always known uh, that up, up until this point in time in 2022, that there are going to be a number that will have to go into long-term storage, he said. According to Bloomberg, uh, Emirates plan to take three more of the double-deckers before the end of their fiscal year next March. However, they don't want the remaining five, according to people who have asked not to be named as the talks are private. Uh, Airbus is proposing a deferral of deliveries or payments, the people said. Uh, Emirates said it remains in regular dialogue with Airbus regarding fleet requirements and doesn't comment on commercial discussions. Airbus declined to comment, saying talks with customers are confidential. Um, Well, (laughs) let's hope it all does get back together. Um, uh, So it's, I mean, they're talking about a two-year recovery period minimum mm. to get back to the level that they were at in order to operate the full fleet of a380s and that that's a that's a big hit isn't it if you mm. think about the do you, do you think that's a realistic out. target well of course we don't know uh, we're, we're just assuming that it's all going to be fine you know in the longer run but we don't actually know and mm. if it turns out i don't, don't want to be a doom monger and thing but if it turns out to be a, a, another big um uh, covid problem somewhere or a yeah. flare-up that could just put everybody's plans on hold so it's yeah. very difficult to predict but that's a, mm. an awful lot of hardware sitting around isn't it, it is yeah, and expensive ha- hardware at that uh, micro actually in the chat room has uh, got a great point uh, he's on his bike by the way at physical therapy so uh, keep pedaling micah off you go is how he's powering the show for us this evening uh, he's mm. got a great point here where he's actually saying the only airline really emirates is at the only airline where the a380 really works you know, because yes, it, it's you true. know, yeah. uh, saying it's uh, very much a, a true, uh, uh, it's very much a true hub. And in fact, wasn't it um, the president himself um, of the airline that said, which we read out a few weeks ago, that if you're going to do A380s, you have to do it big and have a lot of them. Yeah, uh, so yeah. If you're going to do well, and of course, as I say, their their model it works perfectly, doesn't it for mm. for that because it it is you know large numbers of passengers going from you know sort of like and Dubai to posi- Australia. The positioning of dubai as well you know so a, a very mm. good midpoint stopover for yeah. uh western europe to uh, australia for example or asia pacific yeah uh, Actually, rich- i was gonna i was gonna say that that is one hell of a site you know for, for anyone who's had a chance such a mere nev in the past to fly into dubai to see that lineup of a380s parked mm. um, um, yes. at the gate of you know last that year was good, and wasn't that? Yeah. the previous times that i've been before you know when you when you're flying up towards the, the airport and you just see that huge line of 380s sitting at the gates. It is just amazing. Stuff. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, Richard Adams got a, a, another a great point in the chat room. He said, it must be excellent scope to use their, their fleet for bulk onward carriage from, from feeder flights uh, of smaller aircraft, which is a good point. Plus, they do, obviously, uh, being in Dubai, they do oh, yeah. have uh, access to a large amount of oil. So they, it's, yes. uh, the fuel is a bit cheaper for them, I guess. <laughs> So moving on to the next story, Armando, we might have some uh, slightly good news for Boeing. Well, do you guys remember when we used to talk about the 737 MAX? That, that was, oh, yeah. Those were, yeah, I vaguely remember you know, that. Yeah, when yeah. was that? That was yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, it's, been, anyway, it's a, bit like, Boeing, a bit like Brexit here, you know, where we miss it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, so, it's so passe. It was so last year. Uh, so Boeing has restarted its uh, 737 MAX production the same week that it plans to cut more than 12,000 jobs. Mm. Uh, 
So as we just said, the uh, Boeing, the manufacturer is bringing the factory back online at what they're calling a low production rate, uh, five months after halting the MAX assemblies. They say that the 737 program began building airplanes at a low rate as it implements more than a dozen initiatives focused at enhancing workplace safety and product quality. Uh, Boeing does not disclose what that initial production rate is. Uh, they say that it will resume at a very gradual pace and that production ramp up will be determined by the pace of deliveries to our customers. Um, they said in recent weeks, however, that it, uh, it intends to produce about 31 737 max uh, monthly in the year 2021, and they are doing this all in Renton, Washington. Uh, however, on Wednesday, they also said that they are eliminating more than 12,000 jobs in the U.S., including uh, 6,770 involuntary layoffs. Um, they are also restructuring as a result of this coronavirus pandemic. So they are uh, planning several thousand remaining layoffs in the coming months, but they didn't say how uh, those would take place or where they would take place. Um, Boeing is also slashing the costs of, uh, of the aircraft during this pandemic. Uh, so if, if we're in the market, I don't know how much is in the PTUK coffers, but we may be able to get uh, 737 Max at, you know, wholesale rate. Um, you, you can get one for about 25 quid, right? <laughs> probably. We can probably get the model, right? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Anyway, this company announced in April that it would cut 10% of its worldwide workforce of 160,000 by the end of 2020. And then last Wednesday, the 5,520 U.S. employees will take these voluntary layoffs. Um, so there you go. The, uh, the CEO said the pandemic's uh, devastating impact on the airline industry means a deep cut in the number of commercial jets and services to our customers that uh, that our customers will need over the next few years, which in turn means fewer jobs on our lines and in our offices. Uh, I wish there were some other way, as most mm -hmm. CEOs are saying. So, uh, again, you know, it's not just the airline crews. It's all those airline workers, airport workers, aircraft manufacturers, and all these support industries that uh, – our, uh, our well, hearts like, and our thoughts go out to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, even uh, what, what we sort of sometimes forget about, of course, is is our big passion. It's like you've got all these amazing these these services of the airline cruises, but it's also the people that are cooking the sandwiches. You know, that that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's the food element. There's so many industries are impacted by by you know airports and this this whole thing. It is, and of course, this is an aviation podcast, but it's currently every industry out there, mm -hmm. as we all know. You know, we all have lives outside of, of this uh, aviation geekdom. <laughs> that's, a, that's a word, <laughs> certainly. Uh, I'm being told to look at the chat room. Uh, I'm trying. Uh, where we are? Sorry, it's... Uh, sorry, no, I'm, I'm having a little... T Perhaps somebody else can pick it up. Yeah. Uh, Actually, Tony says buy one, get one free. Oh, right. With the, oh, okay. uh, with the Max. That could be a good, good move for Boeing. Um, right, could be. Yeah. <laughs> it's a two for one sale. They're both two for one it. sale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an option. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the next story. Uh, this is on the TechCrunch.com website, and I love this project for two reasons: one, because uh, it's an awesome project, and two, because they're using seven four seven. Uh, to uh, to facilitate this, but uh, the headline on here is Virgin Orbit provides more details about what went right 
with its first launch demo. So Virgin Orbit performed a demonstration of its full launch system on Monday. And while it didn't go quite as planned with the mission cut short just a few seconds after Virgin's launcher one separated from its Cosmic Gale carrier uh, aircraft, the company says it still learned a lot. Uh, and went, a lot went right too. Space flight is tough stuff, and it's actually pretty common for new spacecraft to not quite get everything right on its first time out. SpaceX took four tries with its original Falcon 1 rocket to make it into space, for instance. Uh, the test flights are tests for a reason, and Virgin Orbit notes that it actually did ace a lot of the aspects of the test, including the launch vessel release, the control drop after the release point, igniting the rocket on the launcher one, and even the first couple of seconds of powered flight after that, all of which, it says, proves out the viability of its launch model. Virgin also says it's, uh, it was able to collect good data from the hundreds of channels and sensors during the launch, which is another reason why companies test systems to begin with. That was the main purpose of Monday's launch, and that should help them go back to work on ensuring that the part of the mission that didn't go so well doesn't happen again. So far, Virgin Orbit knows that around nine seconds into its flight, the booster engine on the launcher one extinguished due to a malfunction, causing the rocket to fail or fall harmlessly uh, into the ocean. Now, they don't yet know the cause of the malfunction, but said it could be an iOS update. I'll do that. It's not there. No. But said they are confident that they have enough data to eventually figure out the cause. Now, it's, it's a, honestly, the, there's a video actually, Matt, isn't there, with this? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Story. Should, we, should we give it a quick watch? Because there's, um, as I say, let's, let, let's hear from the uh, the people involved in the project uh, themselves. He's saying. Now, I'm... as we know, this also uses uh, one of Virgin's, uh, their X747, the Cosmic Girl which I'm pretty sure probably quite a number of people, perhaps some of our listeners in the past, have probably travelled mm. on Cosmic Girl on holiday, I expect. Yeah. So our team got to the launch site very early in the morning. We prepared our rocket, we prepared our airplane, we went through our checks of our mission control centre, and we got into our operations. The launch team then walked out and checked out the ground equipment and we flowed propellant into the rocket. We verified that everything was healthy and then we disconnected it. And our flight crew boarded the airplane and taxied out and took off from Mojave Air and Spaceport. We climbed to uh, first 10,000 feet, did our initial checkout, and then went up to our flight altitude of 35,000 feet, entered a racetrack pattern. The system then moved automatically through pressurizing our, our propellant tanks, activating our systems. The pilots then pulled up the 747 and dropped the rocket off the airplane. The rocket then went into a control mode. As it moved through the atmosphere, we ignited the first stage. We then guided the rocket to its trajectory. And at that point, we did have an issue uh, in the system and the engine shut down. Clearly, some disappointment that we, we didn't get to finish the flight and, and take it to orbit, but we were all prepared for that. We collected an enormous amount of data, verifying air launch, separation of the rocket, control of the rocket. We've got an enormous amount of data about the aerodynamics in free space, in powered flight, and we verified our controls algorithms as we guided the rocket with our first stage engine. Our engineers are pouring through the data now 
We'll be applying lessons learned to our next rocket, which is right here in the factory being prepared. We'll make whatever modifications we need to, and we'll get to the next flight. Kind of begs the question, did they go and recover that? Oh, um, I dare say they did. Because I'd, I'd imagine there's, there's probably a few quid's worth of uh, materials. Uh, actually, Yeah, it, uh, I'm sure they're trying. Guys, I went over to Virgin Orbit dot com which is a a typical virgin website it's a uh, it's great it's so simple and one of the the advertisements that they have for launching your own satellite into orbit so i'm I'm just thinking that we could launch i don't know one of the p2k tower maybe into orbit and Ooh. make history well, we've got a satellite that, that doesn't get much use so thanks to covid19 so perhaps we could do something with that <laughs> yeah we can we, we should collect we should collect a time capsule from the audience and just launch it into space because they say uh, they have the most responsive scheduling out of the launch uh, organizations. There's mm. no need to worry about traffic jams at crowded spaceports. With us, you can skip the line and get to your own orbit in your own schedule. Don't go out of business waiting for your ride to space. Hmm. Now that's I, just one of <laughs> many uh, it's one things option. that they have on their yes. website. Very, very cool. Uh, now, now, whilst we're on the subject, you know, we've we've had a show where we've had a couple of collect, co- corrections to make here. Um, I wonder if you could explain to me, uh, Carlos, uh, what is a male function exactly? <laughs> uh, not a hundred percent sure. Oh, uh, a male function. It's to drink beer. Right. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Graham Haley's also. Yeah, it's, okay. it's good. Gra- uh, the the uh, Graham Haley is saying in the chat that the TriStar van goes into space. That's an option, obviously. That would that would be fun. That would yeah, be quite fun, absolutely. Yeah. I think ta- I think Tony wins this one though. He's he, uh, what with his great questions earlier, and and this, of course, he's saying you could launch Nev's muff into space. That's uh, worth uh, worth thinking. Yeah, about. but my muff's not had an outing for many months. I'm actually. sorry to hear that. Um, I'm yes. going to uh, <laughs> give it a bit of a brush off. Well, quite. Well, it is it is historic. So if we want the aliens to find anything, I. Good point. That's Nev, probably my number one choice. Clearly, Nev's muff is where to go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, the oh, final commercial dear. story, Nev. That's with you, my friend. Yeah, it's on simpleflying.com. And uh, do you remember that uh, 2004 Spiel- uh, Spielberg film, The Terminal, uh, starring Tom, Tom Hanks? Uh, yeah, apparently I've seen it, but I have absolutely no recollection of uh, seeing okay. it at all. But uh... Well, um, a young Russian man has been living in Frankfurt Airport's transit area since April the 17th. As you do. Since then, he's become a regular fixture in the airport, recognised and embraced by airport employees as he waits for an opportunity to get out, I hope at two metres distance. Of course. Um, (laughs) uh, But um, it says that sociology student Mikhail Novoselov, Russian obviously, uh, flew into Frankfurt, Germany on April 17th from Moscow. Uh, According to Die Welt, uh, the newspaper, the flight taking him there was a special charter for Russians who had uh, permanent residency status in Germany and were thus allowed to enter despite travel restrictions. Uh, Mikhail's uh, situation was slightly different. His plan was to start a semester abroad at Berlin's Humboldt University. He tells the paper that he was in touch with the German embassy before buying a ticket for his special flight. Embassy employees had assured him that his student visa would be all he needed to enter the country. However, upon arriving in Germany, immigration agents said he was unable to show urgent and necessary grounds for entering the country. 
despite what he was told by embassy workers in Moscow, uh, border agents have had the last word on who can and cannot enter the country. The EU has been under a travel ban since March the 17th, restricting, restricting non-essential travel. Uh, written refusal of entry uh, issued by the German Federal Police, ob- obtained by the newspaper, said that granting entry to him would be a, a present grave threat to a fundamental interest of society and to public health. With no flights heading back to Russia, he continues to live in Frankfurt International Terminal and has done so since his mid-April arrival. Uh, Reports indicate that he has settled into life within the airport's transit area. A random encounter with a Lufthansa employee has given him at least one connection point and source of assistance. He tells Devolt that uh, the employee provided him a folding bed so that he could sleep more comfortably in the transit zone. In addition to this, other airport employees have started to bring him food and have given him shower tokens to get cleaned up. Uh, Commenting on the kindness of airport staff, Mikhail says, they've even asked me what kind of food I like or if I have any allergies. Uh, In terms of day-to-day life, Mikhail spends a good portion of his time wandering back and forth through the large and nearly deserted airport. From time to time, he talks with fellow travellers, which include three Bulgarians who were also denied entry and find themselves in a similar similar situation. Uh, He says he's waiting for a return flight to Moscow, but apparently few flights are departing these days. Simple Flying did a quick search and discovered there are certainly many days of the week when there are no flights available. However, some days do display flights to Moscow uh, through one or more transfer points. The majority of these flights are $1,000 to $2,000 in cost and could be unattainable for the young student. Uh, Their search does include a few upcoming two, three and four stop flights between four and $500. However, it sounds like he is hoping to stay and eventually entered Germany. During his time at the airport, he's been trying to register a place of residence online with authorities in Berlin. He tells Devolt that uh, he is he has, he's convinced border guards would change their minds if he were able to c- overcome this one hurdle. Additionally, his friends have recommended an attorney who is examining <laughs> the case. Wow. Um, the story goes on a little bit, but we'll have to see what happens there. But uh, a couple of things immediately strike me about the story. Frankfurt is an extremely large airport. Um, so um, although with nothing open, there's not much to do. And in my, my experience, you don't want to mess with the German authorities either. Oh, well, um, no, no, so, indeed. I mean, you it know, doesn't sound um, ideal, does it, though? I no, <laughs> and I think uh, he's going to be there for a little while yet. Um, by the sounds of things, but you, you, you uh, part of me is sort of expected that they would have uh, repatriated him home as a matter of urgency. I, I guess. Yes, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Yeah. But it, I suppose if what, why it, they haven't just sent him straight back on the next flight. I don't well, know. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, within a few days, presumably, if they're not not regular flights, but uh, yeah, there we go. But there could be well, there could be worse I, places to get stuck. Let's be let's be honest. There could be worse places to, you know. Mm. Yeah, JFK, like the movie. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, important to note, actually, that uh, DW, the source for this, initially reported this on the 21st of April, and John can't find anything about what's happened since, uh, although there have been... Mm, he's probably still there. Then. Well, yes, absolutely. They're <laughs> yeah, making quite... a film all about him. Right, right yeah. absolutely. Perhaps starring... Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. we're getting notes from our producer, just bear with. Uh, yes. 
Okay, so apparently there's a uh, similar instances in other airports where uh, there's even a guy in uh, Charles de Gaulle who's uh, Gaulle Airport uh, experiencing similar things. So it's it's not an isolated incident by the sound of it. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, okay. Well, that that is where we bring the um, the commercials section to a close. What's next, Carlos? So coming up next, then we uh, are going to hand things over to uh, Armando for our military uh, segment. Oh, great. I feel like we're playing the hot potato game. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, guys, this is going to be the first part of a three-part uh, interview series series with uh, Bob Mills. And I'll just let the interview speak for itself. So, Matt, if you're ready, push the button. Guys, I'm here with Bob Mills. I've known Bob for a couple of years now. Bob is, uh, this is going to be a condensed biography, but he's an experienced naval aviator. He's a current pilot for a major legacy airline. He is the president of the sport class for the national championship air races at Reno. He is a member of a formation demonstration team. And oh, by the way, has just bought a steerman that he flew across the country. So Bob, I don't even know where to start, but welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Armando. It's great to be here. <laughs> so we wanted to do this before Memorial Day. So it's Memorial Day here in the U.S. on uh, on Monday the 26th. And when I was trying to think of people to interview, you know, and in in all honesty, Bob and I, Bob is my boss uh, when I work out at, at Reno at, on the ramp. And that there's just an, I've talked about it on the show a hundred times. There's just an incredible caliber of people out there at Reno. And a lot of people have asked me, it's like, man, why are you so quiet? It's like, well, because in this crowd, you just listen to the stories. You know, we have some, some pretty amazing aviators, amazing individuals. And this year I thought, man, Bob Mills, that guy's got a great story to tell. Um, so, so let's start there. You were in the Navy, right? you were a Naval aviator. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what did you, what kind of aircraft did you fly in the Navy? Okay. Um, well, I, you know, I, I majored in aviation at San Jose State, graduated in May of 1981, and on June 1st of 1981, and I was on my first airline ride since being five years old <laughs> to go see my grandfather, headed to Pensacola. Um, I had about 1,000 hours of general aviation time, had, was a CFI and was working, instructing students, but uh, made the decision my senior year to go into the Navy. And, it, you know, a lot of people ask me, why'd you choose the Navy? You know, why not the Air Force if you wanted to fly? And, and I'll just tell you, I'm not sure why, but all my life I knew that if I went into the military, I'd go into the Navy. And uh, then I met a, re- a recruiter from the San Jose State area and kind of bid on the bait hook, line, and sinker and, uh, and, June of 81, I was uh, getting my head shaved, going through uh, Aviation Officer Candidate School. And, um, you know, I never looked back and I never regretted the decision ever. Um, I retired 30 years later. Uh, so I, I went through the training command and we flew T-34 Charlies for primary, T-2Cs for intermediate jet, uh, TA-4 Skyhawks uh, for advanced strike. And then I stayed as an instructor with the Air Force calls FAPE or first assignment instructor pilot, the Navy calls surgrad or selectively retained graduate. 
which means I got to stay in my squadron, uh, VT-21, the Fighting Red Hawks of Kingsville, Texas. Um, probably one of the best squadrons I was ever in as well. Um, and as a matter of fact, our, our surrogate mom, who was the student control officer and who everybody loved, uh, MJ Reader, is, had her birthday yesterday. So we all wished her a happy birthday. We all came out of the woodwork to do it too. So the, the ties in Navy run long and deep, you know, so, uh, but, but I had a great chance to fly about a thousand hours in the uh, TA-4. And then I was lucky enough to get my first choice coming out of that to fly Tomcats out of Miramar. Uh, wow. Pretty much, pretty much a dream come true. Um, and um, from there, you know, so got to Miramar, went to VF-124, the, uh, the RAG, the replacement air group or fleet replacement squadron uh, for the F-14 and um, then was assigned out of there to uh, Fighter Squadron 21, the freelancers. And uh, we cruised on the USS Constellation. So, oh, wow. yeah, so it was, I mean, I, to be a fighter pilot and flying F-14s out of Miramar in the 80s under the Reagan presidency, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Matter of fact, yeah. they, fil they filmed Top Gun, the first Top Gun, uh, while I was going through training in the uh, in 124, and it was released when I got to the fleet. So, you know, you you couldn't buy a beer anywhere, and girls came were like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> you know, it, it was uh, it was it was like, "This is unbelievable." Well, that's um, one of that's one of those assignments where you wear three shirts underneath your flight suit and you pop all three colors because you're so cool, right? Only when you go to the Randolph Air Force Base Oak Club and wear your fake, uh, <laughs> your, uh, your fake uh, um, scarf and all that kind of stuff, the, which the, got us thrown out of the Randolph Oak Club a few times, too. <laughs> the rivalry shall continue. I, I, I know I, as an Air Force aviator, I, was always, uh, I always admired the tradition and the heritage that the Navy has in their, in their ranks. And, and it's something that I think was, uh, as a new service, we were a little bit lacking in the Air Force. But, but you guys certainly are, are really good about keeping heritage and, and those traditions going, aren't you? Yeah, 200 years plus of, uh, of incredible tradition. Some of it extremely fun. Some of it extremely challenging. Uh, like crossing the line ceremony, crossing the equator for the first time on a ship. I did that on the USS Constellation. And, uh, you know, if you do it on a small boy, a small ship, the, the good news is there's only so many people that can haze you. The bad news is there's not very many of you that are going from becoming what we call a lowly polywog to a trusty showback. And I am <laughs> a trusty showback now. So, but uh, on the carrier, you have thousands of people that can haze you, but you're among a very large group of polywogs being hazed. Uh, but there were some pretty neat traditions there. It was a day that we'll never forget. And uh, that certificate, from uh, Davy Jones and yeah. uh, and um, Neptune are all that's up on the wall too. So <laughs> so it's yeah. Navy Navy was fun, uh, so exciting. Let's stick with that for a second. So I think you you're the you're the first naval aviator that we've had on the show at least in recent history. So what is what is it like? What is life at sea like for an aviator specifically? But it's um. It's all about the mission once you're on board the ship. Um, it's, I mean, you live, eat, sleep, drink the mission pretty much 24 hours a day. There's two sides to that, though, too. They, the, the funny side of that is, that, you know, they used to say that um, a junior officer, a JO pilot, 
would sleep till he's tired and then eat till he's hungry. I said that wrong. I do that. Back. <laughs> That's another edit. So the the life of a JO, aside from fly, 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 and do your your squadron job as well, we used to laugh quite a bit and say, "Hey, a junior officer needs eight hours of sleep every day, and whatever else he gets at night is extra." Or we'd also say, "JOs sleep till you're hungry, then get up and eat till you're tired." Um, but in reality. It's it, the, the entire ship is there to conduct the mission. And whether that be, you know, a transit with minimal flying where you're just working on airplanes or, you know, in the officer's case, supervising or, you know, working in, the, your, in your division office. I, was, I happened to be a maintenance division officer in my squadron, um, you know, and, and working with the troops and sailors to make sure that everything was geared and ready to go. Or once you're in operations doing what we call flex desktop, which is launch a wave, recover a wave, respot, launch a wave, recover a wave, nonstop. And the guys on the flight deck would work their tails off for 16, 18 hours a day, on and off, on, off, on, off, you know, and, um, you know, and life at sea, it's, it's very compact, 5,000 of your best friends on one 1,000 foot long ship. Uh, you get to know most everybody, but it's crowded. Um, you know, the officers live a, uh, a life of mission, mission, and taking care of your sailors. And the sailors live doing their job every day and in conditions that are, that they're, they're arduous. I mean, there are, there are a lot of times they're sleeping, you know, three, two, uh, three racks high. And um, the, uh, the, when the bong goes off in the morning and they say, uh, revely, 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 heave to and trice up. That means heave to, get out of your rack, and trice up means put it up so that people can actually walk through the spaces that you're that you're sleeping in. It oh, is, wow. it's compact, and um, it's um, it's amazing what eighteen to twenty five year old kids really are out there doing every day, and that's the junior sailors to the chiefs. You know, they're twenty five and thirty years old doing a mission that is, it's pretty much absolutely incredible that the, that the mission happens every day because there's so much to it. Just the operation of the flight deck and the, um, the, the choreography really of launching and recovering ships and the safeties that have to be in place, you know, having the deck clear and there are people spotted all over making sure it's clear and about five to probably 10 in some cases, uh, pickle switches like emergency switches have to be depressed to make sure that that aircraft can come aboard safely, everybody's out of the way. And if any button gets let go, it's a wave off and it was not a safe deck. Uh, launching of an aircraft carrier, you know, you got 18, 19 year old kids that are final checking the airplane. You've seen the videos of, uh, of uh, men and machines and now men, women and machines up on the flight deck, um, you know, crawling forward as the airplane's getting up on the catapult launch, making sure everything's good. They're there, they're out of the way. And then the catapult officer launches the deck and ducks as the violence of a air of an airplane under afterburner goes, you know, launching from zero to 150 in 2.2 seconds. You know, it's, it is an amazing, amazing place. And, you know, I think Navy pilots in general feel an absolute bond. You know, if you've been to sea on a carrier there's, there's nothing quite like it. And, and they also share that bond of having been there at night. You know, I think every Navy pilot will tell you flying aboard the carrier in the daytime is 
absolutely the coolest, most fun, incredible thing they've ever done. And flying aboard the carrier at night is absolutely the most insane thing they've ever done. <laughs> well, what is that? What is that like? What is, what is it like to take off from the carrier? And I guess we'll, we'll stick with the daytime first, and then you can tell us about what, what is that like landing an F-14 on a carrier at night? So you want, you want daytime or nighttime? Uh, your choice, uh, but I, I think yeah. we should start with daytime and then you okay, build the suspense. Right. <laughs> so I'll, I'll relate the story of my very first catapult launch. Uh, it was in a T2, which is a, a small, not too heavy, not too fast of a takeoff speed. So the energy that gets imparted into the airplane by the catapult is far, far less. You know, a, a, I'm trying to think of it, remember the actual gross weight, but say a 16,000 pound T2 that needs to get to 90 is a whole different animal than a 65,000 pound F-14 that needs to get to 150. Um, there's just a lot more energy. That, but that first T2 launch, they, they always say, if you have a cold cat, which means a, a catapult shot that doesn't have enough energy to get you to flying speed by the end or just dribbles you off, very, very dangerous. And the only time you'll ever not know if you had a cold cat or not is on your first cat launch. After that, you'll know if it's for real. And, and I remember, you know, we landed, did two touch and goes, then I landed and, uh, you know, get taxied over behind the uh, jet blast deflector. It comes up, there's steam from the catapult going off from the uh, launch before me. It's, it's a whole lot like the start of the movie Top Gun, really. You know, and you're just like, oh my God, this thing's really moving. And you look out at the water, seeing it go by and you taxi up to the, to the catapult. And they, they're, they bring you up very carefully, slowly up onto the shuttle. They get everything hooked up. And then they, uh, they uh, uh, make sure that when, it, when they get the thumbs up, the catapult officer gives you the, the run it up signal. And you go to full power and grab the cat grip, which is a little grip that comes up in front of the throttle so your hand doesn't get thrown back. And you take the stick and you just kind of cup your hand around the stick so that it doesn't come back into your, into your gut too fast. And you basically just have a nice soft grip on that. And then um, you know, what you, we call it wiping out the cockpit. You move the controls and the rudders and every, so they see all deflection of all controls from the cat and he's still giving his signal. And then you salute. And I remember, all right, I'm not going to just stick my head back and give this geeky salute. I'm going to look over and give this real manly salute. So I do that. Do that. I see him touch the deck. And then it was, whoa, let me off of this thing. <laughs> it was like, Holy mother of God. And, and this is a T2. And, um, and then, boom, suddenly you're flying. You know, like, well, that was cool. Oh, now I got to go back and do it again. <laughs> oh, my but, goodness. But, and no, it was so fun. And then you, get, you go back, you get your – we did two touch and goes, four traps, and, uh, and then you're considered a qual. They launch you off to the beach again. And uh, mine was – my T2 qual was off the coast of Corpus Christi. My A4 qual was off the coast of, um, of Key West. And, um, so, you know, then late, you know, so however many years later it was after I finished my, uh, instructor tour, got to the fleet, my first real heavy F-14 cat shot in the daytime was eye-watering. And that was, you know, salute, be ready. And it was, it, I didn't, um, I didn't prepare myself quite physically fully for it. And it, <laughs> kind of knocked the wind out of me. Not, I mean, did, you know, just for his kind of, oh, man, oh, we're flying. <laughs> we're off, and, you know, sometimes when you stand up too fast, the little yeah. whoop, 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 so I'm like, that went, 
okay, let's fly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's the, just the power and the, it, it's just something that's beyond belief. It's so much fun. Um, so at least you, on, on an Air 14, I, you're, you're going off the deck and you've got basically minimum airspeed to get it going, right? And, then, and you're at full afterburner. Uh, and then, you, sometimes we're in full burner. Sometimes we're just at military power. Okay. Depending on the weight of the airplane. Uh, if you're fully loaded for bear, you know, lots of fuel, missiles, everything on board, then you're in afterburner go up. It's weight limited and wind over deck limited on whether you're in burner or not. Okay. Um, so you were, well, so, and then, so now you, you just sort of lop off the deck there and then, and you're in full power and now you're just hoping that you'll know pretty quick if it's going to fly or not. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting because it, the, the airplanes tend to settle just a bit and then catch their flying speed quite rapidly. And all of them seemed to, all my experience was the airplanes were all about the same, especially, you know, the T2 maybe less so because it's straight wing. But the A4 and the Tomcat with swept wings, and especially the A4 with little skinny delta wings, it, it comes off the deck and just settles just a bit, but then it's flying right away. And you just, okay, landing gear up, get the speed, flaps up, off we go. Yeah. And you have to stay below 500 feet because of the recoveries above you. You have to stay below 500 feet for five miles. And so that's kind of fun too. Just... Yeah. And then, so now you go up there and you got to come back. And now you got to land it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I never really thought about the the whole go around or the touch and go. I, that's almost incomprehensible to me to do a touch and go because you've only got a couple hundred feet, right, to to land it on. Mm-hmm. Well, have you seen? Have you ever watched Navy pilots do touch and goes? Uh, it's, no, we it's it's actually as close to really being a touch and go as any air as any practice you'll see, because we actually fly at about. 25% over stall speed, like 1.22 VSO. Um, so you're a little bit slower, but you go right to full power as you touch down. And then you're, so basically what you'll see a lot of times, if, if the deck's here, we'll come down and we, we back it up just a little bit. So every Navy approach is flown identically. We, on downwind, we trim it up for on speed, which is 15 units angle of attack for most airplanes. And, um, and then we, and we fly perfectly level on speed, gear down, flaps down, hook down if you're going to stop and hook up if you're not. And, um, um, and then, so it's completely trimmed out downwind. Then a beam, the LSO platform or the, the landing spot, you basically roll into kind of a standard rate turn, but it's about 22 degrees or so angle of bank and different airplanes, slightly different. And you just fly the pattern all the way around. You go from 600 feet to 450 at the 90 to 375 as you cross the uh, wake of the ship. And then from that point, uh, the mantra of every Navy pilot is meatball, lineup, angle of attack. And it's all right here, a little bit of a scan to your left where meatball is the lens of the, uh, the, the glide slope. The very, uh, it's a Fresnel lens uh, that it's an orange light, unless you're really low, then it's red, but uh, an orange light that shines in the middle of three of uh, um, green datum lights it's called you want to keep the ball in the middle that's the thing so meatball meatball so it's meatball lineup and then angle of attack for on speed for the airplane and you just fly that you're making small power corrections small lineup corrections and we really aim for the the spot that is between the the 
the launching areas, the bow of the ship, and the, uh, and the landing area, because it's an angle deck, so we aim for this point right here. And then as you get in close, it becomes more meatball, 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 and uh, the LSO becomes um, advisory on, um, on um, uh, lineup. You know, so as you get in close, the ship is tending to move a little bit away from the landing area because it's going like this and we're landing. Let me see if I can do this right. We're landing on the angle deck and the ship's going this way. So our landing area is actually moving slightly as we, as we uh, come aboard the ship. And so it's very typical that you'll start to drift left in close because you're just concentrating on the glide slope. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, uh, a very common call from the LSO is right for lineup. And we, a little bit of a right wing dip and a little bit of power to keep from floating or from descending, I'm sorry, if, at that point. If you do too much, you float. If you do not enough, you settle. So you just basically fly it aboard that way. But you're focused on the meatball. And the LSOs are watching that you're looking at the meatball, not at the deck. It's an interesting thing. Because the ship is moving away from the pilot, they, they want to have you fly an apparent three-degree glide slope. But because that glide slope's moving from you, they actually give you a four-and-a-half-degree glide slope. And then as you get closer, if you look at the ship, it looks like you're really high, but you're not because it's moving. Yeah. And, um, and so if you, that's called spotting the deck. If you look at the deck, the tendency is to try to come down to it, but the deck's going to get out from under you. So it's not good. So they'll say, don't spot the deck, wave it off. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the, the touch and go piece is it's, um, it's an efficient way of getting practice landings on the ship. You know, that every Navy pilot spends a ton of time doing what we call field carrier landing practice or FCLPs. And so we, we work that, work that so that we show the, the same LSO that's going to wave us at the boat is waving us at the field. Right. And they're looking for consistency. They're looking for any trends. They're looking for, does this guy settle in close all the time? And if, and if they see that, they'll work with you to train you out of it. Um, and then you go to the boat and you, and it's the same thing, you know, and the conditions change, you know, sometimes you'll have bad weather. Um, and rather than come downwind and land, uh, which we call a case one recovery, we'll do a case three recovery, which is like a long, uh, GCA to three quarters of a mile, and then be able to see the ship at three quarters of a mile and start flying the ball in the LSO. Wow. You, so you have a radar controller that takes you to three quarters of a mile, and then you have a LSO that brings you in the rest of the way. And that's how every night landing is done. Okay. Is that, was my, that was my next question is how does all this translate to doing it at night? Yeah, we do, we do basically a, a, on the, on the uh, at ashore, we call it a ground controlled approach. And at sea, we call it a carrier controlled approach. So you're in a CCA box pattern and um, it's all left traffic because Navy pilots only know how to turn left, right? <laughs> That's right. So, There's a lot of Air Force pilots that only know how to turn left with gunships and, and surveillance. <laughs> yeah, but those guys are cool too. <laughs> um, so, um, so, yeah, it's all, it's all um, uh, carry-controlled approaches to a GCA, uh, PAR approach, if you will, all the way down. And, you know, they're giving you, um, you know, come left, come right. Little, little little below glide slope on on course on glide slope on course on glide slope which is what you want to hear um and then three quarters of a mile call the ball there's a ball in the f-14 the backseater calls the ball and the pilot flies while the rio while the backseater screams oh. yeah he's just a lot that's a lot of trust you those know those are they are the bravest guys in the world those who sit in somebody else's backseat when they're coming aboard the carrier at night i'll tell you that right now 
Yeah, you know, and, salutes to those guys. And one of the things when, when we get to talking about Reno, one of the things that I've been most impressed by is the way you run the organization. And we'll, we'll get to the point where how did you end up as the president of, of the sport class? But the way you run the, the training and the professionalism and ultimately the trust that is fostered within those pilots, yourself included, because you race in the class, is, is something that, that to me is, is nothing short of, of just impressive. And, and I wish that everybody got a chance to see the behind the scenes, um, but, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask, and for me, you would have just answered this question, but what is, thinking back on your naval career, what is your, the most harrowing moment that you've had that you can talk about? <laughs> that I can talk about? That you can well, talk about. Uh, I, I, I did eject out of an F-14 and it was during night carrier operations. And uh, the deck was moving um, excessively, they will say. I won't make any excuses, but um, basically, um, the the plan that night was to bring to do carrier qualifications for our entire air wing, and um, the deck was really moving a lot. And it was a judgment call whether it was in limits or out of limits. It was pretty close, and it moved out of limits sometimes. But the um, the the and I was one of the LSOs in our squadron, so the guys waving me were very good friends, and uh, they're the ones teaching me how to be a fleet LSO. So the plan was uh, launch the uh, airplanes and bring them in, and if the deck is in limits when we got to the wave off window, which is a specific point, you know that it moves, it varies, but it's if you're at a place where if we bring you any closer and things are really moving, we're not going to do it. We're going to send you around. And, um, and I just happened to get in a situation where, um, everything looked really good. We were bringing it in and we got in fairly close and the deck did a pretty big wild move down, big down, uh, move. And then a big up move and they waved me off, but it was really in close and the deck came up and we skipped off the end of the uh, carrier with our engines. So resulted in a dual engine fire and an ejection just to the, uh, upwind end of the ship. So there's my big scary moment, right? That would do um, it. Yeah. So uh, my, my Rio and I both survived. Uh, we both spent about 20 minutes in the water. We were picked up by a helicopter. Um, not quite the same as you saw in the uh, Top Gun because it was nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, so brought back to the ship and, you know, everybody, everybody came through that one fine. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> now, the, the, the natural follow-up to that is, is what is either your most – cherished memory or, or, or one of the top in your naval career? Probably earning my wings, I would say, you know, and it, and there was, there's so many things that, that went into that, but it was, uh, like I told you that VF or VT 21 squadron, the Red Hawks were, it was a great family, great commanding officers, um, great, um, Lieutenant commander, you know, department head guys, uh, guys that led us, you know, I never forget um, being led to the ship off of Key West by a guy named Ed Carey, who's now a retired uh, Northwest Delta pilot, um, just retired, great guy, A7 pilot, and, uh, and one of the best characters ever known. So, and, but there's so many friends that I went through that process with, and then I got to be an instructor with them, but to get my wings with all of them was, uh, you know, it's the culmination of, of um, a couple of years of, you know, 
hard, hard work. I mean, nose to this grindstone every day. I mean, you know how it is. Uh, what a great start to the interview. We've got a couple more of these to look forward to, Armando, yeah? Yeah, this is an amazing uh, interview series. And Bob is just such a great speaker and such a talented aviator that he's got a lot to talk to us about. And it was hard. It was hard to whittle that whole interview down from about two hours, I think we were talking to him almost, to something that we can air out. But uh, mm. yeah, just a, a great, and I can't even imagine that. I can't imagine punching out of an F-14 at night into the water. That's just... Uh, just crazy, isn't it? Uh, right, so so what, have yeah. you, what have we got What have we got in next week's part? Uh, so Bob is actually a very experienced uh, airline pilot. So we're going to talk about his transition from the military into airline flying. He is one of the longest serving Southwest Airlines pilots. And, you know, he's cleared us to sort of say that. And he talks about Southwest Airlines and their culture and, and his history uh, with, with the airline. So it'll be good to listen to him talk about uh, the military skills that he took over into commercial aviation. Just just quickly, Armando, again, how long do you say you've known Bob for? So I've known about four years, probably going on five years now. He's the uh, president of the sport class out at Reno air races and uh yeah so um i know he's got a lot more hit stories that we could probably tap into in the future too probably um, a lot lot more stories yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. Uh, well there's, there's a lot of love in the chat room for it uh armando there's some great uh, great feedback coming in uh alan loveday especially is saying that uh, this has got to be one of the best aviation interviews brilliant up there with the best which is is great tony's saying that uh, good job armando bob sounds like a great guy uh yes yeah, well, so, when uh, you have when you have guys like bob it, it makes the interviews easy i bet and, uh, and and matt i want to thank you because i'm basically a a toddler with an etch-a-sketch trying to edit videos and, and you worked some magic on, on that so that's thanks, right. buddy. It's, it's all about the experience mate that's fine it, it's it's one of those things you'll 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 be you'll be doing it on your own in no time at all but uh i'm just having a no, look that's so, okay you can take it <laughs> a couple of comments he says moving on all embarrassed uh, richard adam was saying winkle brown's autobiography is a fascinating tale uh, by the way of navy aviation if you've uh not read it uh, his record for deck landings is never likely to be beaten uh, somewhere to test increasingly rough landings uh, so yeah so that's a great recommend de- recommendation uh, there and he, he uh, tony actually mentioned a, a guy by the name of uh, dale snodgrass um, you're, you're going to look into that for us aren't you yeah that's right i'll reach out to bob i talk to him regularly especially now you know we'll get to uh, his role in reno in part three of the interview. But uh, right now I talk to him regularly because we're trying to figure out whether we're going to run Reno air races or not this year. Oh, if wow. It's going to be a reduced, uh, reduced version. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of, uh, it's a lot, not as big as Oshkosh, but there's a lot of planning that has to start taking place usually in May. And we're already a little bit behind the curve on that. So um, I'm talking to him regularly about uh, just what it's going to look like in September, where there's going to be a, uh, televised only, no audience air race, whether it's going to be pylon racing seminar televised or some some version of that. But we just have to see, you know, over the next couple of months, see how it goes. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, looking forward to the rest of that. Uh, so that that is uh, more or less where we have to start wrapping things up. Uh, Carlos, uh, what are you up to this week? <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Very funny, Matt. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Well, I, th- I thought you might, you know, might have a bit of work or something, you know. Well, all I've seen we've done for the last two weeks is valet people's cars. Right. Okay. What's well, keeping you busy? Um, including mum, my mother's today. Um, next week, 
hopefully fingers crossed we might have a, a day where i might actually have to go and physically do some work for my company which would be quite nice to get back to doing something uh but other than that i shall be doing what i've been doing for the last eight weeks right. being a house house husband <laughs> uh which actually gemma has been finding very 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 hard indeed coming home every night to a cooked meal um yeah. right okay so, yes uh, it's my... safe to say at the end of this thing i'll be a phenomenal cook yeah um, and a even better car valet. I, I think Mum is enjoying that that fact as well. Actually, uh, now ge- geeks like me will dare dare say uh, know that uh, uh, I was at, was it uh, was it yes no not yesterday day before I think wasn't it Wednesday and of course the, there's a lot of hubbub about uh, the SpaceX launch that was supposed to have taken mm. place I think on on uh, was it Thursday guys have I got that right I think it was no Wednesday wasn't it it was supposed to happen Wednesday and yeah. it's been, and it's uh, been postponed because they're going to try again uh, on Saturday, actually. And uh, uh, if, you, if you want to catch uh, some of it, they're, as they're streaming it live on YouTube for those that, that want to. There's a, as I say, they're trying again. I think it's, is it 4 o'clock uh, in the States, isn't it? I seem to recall. Um, yeah. I can't remember. Hopefully the weather yeah. will be good. Hopefully yeah, the weather will be good. Fingers crossed. It, Fingers crossed. It, the forecast is not looking great at the moment, is it, for... Uh, for said launch but hopefully hopefully they'll get it in the air so it's quite exciting isn't it because it's i mean it, it, i was watching the footage uh uh on wednesday saying it was very much um it looked very futuristic do you know what i mean it looked like nothing mm. uh like I, i've seen before so uh it, it's very very futuristic it, it actually what's, like what's going fun. on with your weather armando you know every time i look at the weather forecast for you guys in the states <laughs> we, we used to we're used to seeing you guys having like unlimited sunshine and awesome temperatures all the time and even when i've been playing x plane 11 this week on the sim here at home every time i've gone to fly from atlanta or pittsburgh the weather's been rubbish <laughs> well that was just my green screen of beautiful weather that's actually oh. zanzibar on my green screen <laughs> right no it's uh, it's summertime <laughs> summertime we get some pretty good storms especially in the southeast uh, uh, we were talking about it sort of off air. It's uh, it always been interesting that Cape Canaveral is in a place where there's basically rains and thunderstorm every day at 4.30 in the afternoon. Right, uh, okay. But yeah, even even just today I was flying around and we were dodging some some pretty good buildups. You know, we're not, we're not that high, especially we got some mm. short routes. So we're right there sort of in the middle of it with uh, all our navigational and weather aids uh, doing some real-time dodging. I should just say, actually, uh, in the in the chat room here, Chris uh, Marsh, uh, who we've got a great couple of segments to look forward to in the in the next couple of weeks. Uh, he's just saying a quick heads up for you folks in the chat room. Uh, those of you watching the YouTube feed will know that behind me, I've got the image behind Matt is a teaser for my contribution set for next week. Anyone recognise the logo? Do Do any of you guys recognise the logo? We know it's a seven five seven because we were, were joking about that earlier. Um, what was it? A fancy French outfit? Uh, Tony is offering. Um, Ooh, any, anybody ideas? What's a, a fancy fre- French outfit? That sounds... I think it's a tuxedo, isn't it? <laughs> well, quite, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Uh, I've, uh, is uh, no, you... I'm out. I don't know the logo. Do you not? Oh, no. Oh, that's rubbish, honestly. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, well, yes, as I say, join us next week to to find out, as uh, John is saying in our ears. So, uh, yes, good point. Uh, there so, we Nev. Are. What have you got planned for uh, next week? 
Well, I'm back at work, uh, so there may be some travelling if anybody wants to see me next week, or if they're allowed to see me, of course. That's thing. Uh, a good point. Um, no plane activity, no international travel uh, for the foreseeable future, and we'll see how we go. But uh, I'm, I've got to say, I'm looking forward to going back. Um, it's been three weeks is a long time off. Um, mm. Nice for the first week, but then... I lost interest after. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. If bored not now. just so you can use your gold status again, Nev. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there get is on that. plane again. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, talking about the uh, the SpaceX launch. Sorry, I've just been corrected. So it's slated for uh, Saturday, uh, three twenty-two p.m. Eastern time. That's seven twenty-two UTC or eight twenty-two British summer time here. Um, if you do want to catch it, Ooh. and if you search for NASA, uh, their channel on YouTube. Uh, actually, I have to say, say, watching it on Wednesday is really good quality as well. Uh, re- mm, very well, much. Look, yeah. Yeah. Very much looking forward to, yeah. to that. That'll be good. So, I would hope so. They're putting men into space. Well, yes, I know, but uh, you know, some, sometimes the, te- the some- what's what's on the uh, plans for you next week on Monday? Are you flying all across the uh, the Americas? Well, hopefully tomorrow I'm gonna. Or is it tomorrow? Or maybe the next the next day I'm gonna link up with Rick Bell here in Ooh. Pittsburgh, and we're gonna have sort of just an informal meetup. But if anybody sees this in time, just kind of reach out to us at podcast at Plain Talking UK. Or just Armando at Plain Talking UK. Dot and, com. Uh, let, let us, yeah, dot com. Um, <laughs> let us know that you're going to be in the area. We'll try to pick a restaurant or something like that and, and meet up. Otherwise, it's going to be me and Rick telling old war Social stories. Social distance, me Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, Air hugs, of course. We'll, we'll have masks on. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be outside, outside seating, of course. Um, but no, this is my last week in Pittsburgh as a base. I got a couple days off and then. Midway through next week, I will be moving down to Atlanta. Oh, wow. So, oh, regularly catching be... up with Captain Jeff then. Yeah. Well, if he wants a job, he can always come work for me. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, on that bombshell, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can search for us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Search for the handle Plain Talking UK. Our WhatsApp number, if you want to pos- pester Carlos, ideally at three o'clock in the morning, plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six. The email for the show, as uh, Armando said, is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And of course, our website, new website coming very soon, all being well, www.plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, if you haven't done so already and you're listening to the audio version of the show we do a video version too uh, why not subscribe to our channel on youtube www.youtube.com uh, we also have on our website a link to do your shopping through amazon that uh, who pay us a basically advertising referral fee uh, for uh, any purchase that you you do through our link and uh, as we've said on on several uh, weeks in in, in the past uh, thank you so much to our very loyal patrons we know times are tough for all of us at the moment and so your contributions mean even more to us at the moment uh, so uh, a little round of applause I think for our wonderful Patreons who are helping to keep us Whoa. on the air which is good and uh, well if done. you were watching at the top of the show of course uh, we had the legend that was Petter from the Mentor Pilot uh, on YouTube you can find uh, him by searching for Mentor that's M-E-N-T-O-U-R Pilot uh, and it's, w- it's uh, uh, www.mentorpilot.com uh, and also the other site that he was talking about where he was talking about the pilot uh, the, the pilot initiative shall we say for, for new pilots it's the airline pilot club.com yes so that is where we are going to uh, bring to a close episode number 320 what a busy show 
of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Yeah, it's been a great show. Absolutely fantastic. Really so enjoyed big it thanks this to week. all the hosts and everyone who has joined us in the world of YouTube this evening. Thanks to all the chat room for joining us uh, this Friday evening. And I hope you all have a fantastic weekend, whatever you're doing, and stay safe. So from, uh, from me here in, uh, well, Matt's uh, room here at my uh, house, the alternative uh, PTK studio, <laughs> from Matt over in the PTK studios, from Nev in the well-established Nev Tech studios, and Armando across the pond. In, in a manky hotel room, room in the middle of nowhere. In a manky hotel yeah. room. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. And... Take care, guys. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. 